One tournament table. Table tennis, hockey, pool. Batteries not included. is born um what are we doing we're doing a podcast blake wake up wake up wake up <laughs> damn you need to stop waking me up i know i i need to stop giving you um uh nyquil <laughs> mixing that in with your with your uh with your oj my eggnog <laughs> why does this eggnog look a little red <laughs> there was a, a phenomenon back in the day when i first started working at my cable news job 20 years ago where people used to call it robo chugging I never did it myself, but it was a kind of way of getting drunk quick where people, you would just take some NyQuil and you'd shotgun it really quick. And of course, you'd get like drunk and, you know, a little crazy and then you'd just pass out. And I think I never, it was like a cheap man's way of getting drunk <laughs> or good, getting good times. I don't know how cheap is that though. NyQuil is probably I mean, like $20. You can get a... That's true. I guess you're right. It's like, it's like, <laughs> why just not buy some like night train or something? But because of grain alcohol, you probably yeah, I don't know spend what the that fraction of the cost for a bottle of NyQuil. Yeah. Very good point. I don't know why you would want to um, spend twenty bucks. On like, Look at this! I got some. You know, it's like not even the generic. You didn't get like the uh, Pathmark special. You got like uh, I got the high end stuff. Anyway, Nyquil and Robo chugging. Drop it. So, um, Christmas time is here again. Christmas time is here. Blake sings, Blake sings all the hits. <laughs> such as Feliz Navidad. <laughs> <laughs> I want to wish you. You know, we, we should take the uh, podcast on the road. Why don't we do a collection of shows around the country where a we sing like Christmas? A cabaret act? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll set up like a mini bar. We'll set a piano up. Neither one of us really drink that much, really, anymore. But we'll set up a bar. 
We'll set up a little piano that neither one of us can really play. <laughs> hey, we'll come out and, how did hey. all these people get in my basement? Oh, yeah. <laughs> how are you all in my unfinished basement, baby? Are you guys here, too? <laughs> well, you know, that, that would be actually really cool. Like, our set is like a, a freezer. <laughs> you know, like a... <laughs> And whatever else is like a water heater. So like at the beginning of every performance is us coming down the stairs like we're getting something out of the freezer for our parents. Yeah. Hey, what are you guys doing in our in our basement? <laughs> Next to the weight set. Old wood paneling. Yeah, in the cobwebs. Don't go through those VHS boxes, baby. <laughs> I'll be up in a minute, Mom. Yeah, I'll get you your pizza. Whatever I think cream. about... Uh... Like in my head, I mean, you know, obviously when we're not doing the show in one of our basements, but in my head when I think about the show, yeah, in the, in the mind's eye of Ooh. where we do the splinter show, splinter of mind's eye. It's your basement at your old house. Yeah, I remember that house. <laughs> the Hamden house. That the, the old days of the Hamden we have house. Side. The old, the old, the old days of uh, of us doing um, all of our activities down in the old house. Did I and did I make this up in my in my in my childlike brain where the, you know, your wallpaper in that bedroom was like the moon landing? <laughs> um, well, these are two different things. So um, there was the basement. So yeah, when I two different moved, rooms. Yeah. So when I moved back from college, um, my parents had given my sister the bigger room, which was my room at the time. So I got her smaller room, but then I just started not living in the basement, but I like figured it was like a two floor difference, so I wouldn't bother them late. So I kind of moved everything from college down there. So only only we could keep your parents up in the basement. Yeah, only you and I, Blake and I could keep the parents up um by being so loud they can hear us two flight two floors up. <laughs> um so that the basement had like the TV couches and stuff like that, but what you're indicating is when I was when I got we, they put an addition on the house uh, when I was like in fifth grade and they extended the the back of the house by like two feet and, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot or maybe three feet, but it gave us much more space in the room. It made the room bigger, and then below that room was the TV room, so it made it, like, bigger. You know, you're able to... So when they did that, they it was that was in the time of people may remember of mural. You can get those, those stick-on murals on the wall. And I know nowadays you have those... I forget the name of the damn company, the... Um, the smash or whatever they call it, the people are going to know, but the sports company where you can get those right out, those sticky things on the wall and you can get like your favorite player. Like, um, you know, I was going to say Wayne Boggs, <laughs> like, you know, Wayne I'm Gretzky. Com- <laughs> yeah. I'm completely, you know, Dom Mattingly. I'm completely Thurman Munson. I'm completely out of the range of what's the popular people of today, but you know, you can get those, I forget those stickers you can get on the wall that are life size. Where like when we were little, we just have the cardboard cutouts, but they used to have these things that were like kind of uh, uh, you'd measure the the size of your wall and then you'd look and you'd get it, it was basically like uh, 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 wallpaper and it would have directions and you put it up and it would be a picture. So like there were I remember there was like there was New York City skyline, which would have been really cool. There was like a uh, baseball field, like from the pitcher's mound or something at some uh, you know, major league baseball game. And then the one I had, and I forgot why we ended up getting, maybe because the other one was out. Cause I would have loved the New York city skyline was the, one of the space shuttles sitting in space with the earth in the background. 
you know? So it was just like parked out there and somebody snapped the picture. And I'm pretty sure that spaceship was the, uh, the Columbia. And that might've been the one that blew up in 2003 on re-entry February, 2003. It was coming in and something happened. I think that was Columbia. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And it, 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 it kind of, uh, it disintegrated in orbit coming back in. So that might have been the one I had up on the uh, up in the thing. So I had that for how many years? I don't know, ten years or so. And then when I got to high school, I was like, I'm growing out of this. I don't need to have this on my wall. So I started covering it with like you know posters of stuff and articles and movies and stuff like that. So by the time you saw it, it might have been half dash and half covered. Yeah. But at the time, my mother was a wallpaper queen. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really. Dirty. Forget about a BJ queen. My mom was a wallpaper queen. <laughs> but she could put up wallpaper like nobody's business. You know, she'd be like, you need some wallpaper put up? And she'd like, you know, to come up with the, open up the, the card table, the the big wallpaper table. <laughs> so she put the, she put all that stuff up. So answer your story, question. Yeah, I had one of those up and it was a space, you know, kind of thing. It was cool. I mean, when you were I little, remember it was awesome. cool. I remember when, when, you know, first time I was over, I think it was fucking awesome. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, <laughs> crazy to, to look, you know. And then the wall it was on, I don't know, it was like a 30 feet wall, like 30, no, not 30. Yeah, maybe like 30 feet in length and then maybe like eight feet tall. So it was like a big, it was spa- big. Expan- yeah. yeah, it was a big expanse space, you know. So it was pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, that was it. <laughs> so, uh, all right. And then the basement, you know, and then the, every time you came over with the basement, the basement didn't have the carpet, but we, it used to be a carpeted basement. And we had the big old, f- the, the legendary flood of 97 Good old uh, flood during of orientation f- weekend. Flood of 97. Yeah, the old flood of 97 where, because we were the lowest the point on the. SS flag sank. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, it sank <laughs> into some sewage. We were the lowest point on the uh, street. And we had a sewage backup, and uh, the the little thing failed. The 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 you know the pipe goes out to the to the to the street. Suck that, pump. The, yeah, whatever that is, you you can open it up and you can get it. You know when they have to snake it, that failed that that the connection, and we had what an inch of raw sewage in the basement. So my parents threw everything out. They threw all my GI Joes out. Threw all my Matchbox cars out. Threw out the USS Flag. Threw out the Terradrome. Throughout uh, uh, anything that was big enough to be downstairs, my constructs and all that, and then they had to rip up all the carpet. So I didn't know about that because that was orientation weekend. So your, by the time uh, I got your home, little brother, they killed through my little brother out. <laughs> we don't talk about him anymore because <laughs> he was handcuffed into the basement as it is. So by the time you came over, they had to remodel. They had to you know put new sheetrock on like the bottom part of the thing, repaint it, and then I think it was looked like linoleum or something we had yeah. on the floor. It was very cold. Like you know we had to have area rugs everywhere. We had bean bags we had to throw out because remember in the nineties bean bags were all in, you know like you had like a neon green bean bag, a neon blue bean bag, Money. you know. So uh, I had the tournament table. Was that still was that still around when you were there, or did they throw that out? Do you remember the tournament table? No. Tournament table was like as big as my coffee table, and you know you think it's huge, but it's like a little. For people who might remember this, it was a Fisher Price, I think it was called, and it was for kids. And it was the tournament table was a pool table that would turn also into a hockey. You could flip it, and then you could play like not air hockey, but it was like you know it was on foam, so the hockey was smooth. You could play like table table hockey, and then you could put on top of it two things, and you can have ping pong. Okay. 
you know, I so, don't remember so, that. Oh, okay. So maybe they must have thrown that out at the same time too. So, you know, you, you'd have, but the pool table wasn't, of course, a regular regulation size pool table. It was yeah. like a kid size pool table. So now I realize in retrospect when I ask, you know, why didn't my dad ever want to always play pool with me? It's because it's hard. It's like playing on a pool. Like, you know, guess <laughs> <laughs> was like three by two. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> he could just place the ball into the pocket. You know, but the but I remember like the commercial for the tournament table and all that was like high end, and we got it that year, sixth grade, and that thing was awesome, bringing people over and playing like you know ping pong and playing uh, hockey and stuff like that. Um, all right, good night, folks. Yeah, this was a sorry. We along the side, a completely unplanned conversation yeah. about the basement, <laughs> my basement, and wallpaper. <laughs> Hamden, Connecticut, and wallpaper, <laughs> wallpapering. Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. It's the Christmas edition. Christmas right? edition. Christmas. Uh, well, we were talking about going on a road show. Let us know if you would be interested in seeing us go to various <laughs> venues and, and, and bringing our show on the road. With our nightclub act. Yeah, we, we can come up with a quick nightclub act and uh, you know have some bands perform and we talk about, I don't know how the format would be. Would we just I talk movies? I think we'd have to talk about a movie. Let us let me tell you something about Care Bears the movie, kid. <laughs> Care Bears the movie. Whoa, don't open that book, baby. <laughs> or like you know, Maximum Overdrive. We made you remember. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> like really weird <laughs> throwbacks. Our tuxes with our ties undone. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to look like prom. Like you know, like we look like something out of like The Wedding Singer. It'll make us more look no, like we're going, have, you know. You don't have to wear those, like, powder blue ones. We get really nice yeah, tosses. Yeah, we don't want seven. Yeah, like a nice, like, you know, like it's fitted. And we're doing, like, Q&A, like, uh, you know, we're throwing out lines. Tell us what movie this is from. <laughs> 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 Somebody would always get it, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> our audience, whatever, if we even give the slightest hint, people will guess. Yeah, we just old like days. we the act would just be like, I'm thinking of a movie. <laughs> what is it? And somebody would be like, uh, uh, Rebo Williams. Yes, yes, you got it. So, <clears throat> there's a there's a guy I work with, um, uh, at my day job on cable news, and he works on the business side. So I work at a news channel and a business channel. He and he's actually a host now. He's our age, and he's a host on the business channel doing business news. And I've discovered that he is a huge, huge Transformers fan. Knows Transformers the movie by heart. So, in all the turbulent times we're going through these days with everything going on in the world, while I'm micing him up, <laughs> I'm always like, uh, maybe I'll, 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 um, I'm like, Brian, can you please give me your position on what you think about Unicron coming and encroaching onto the space and Earth, and do you think he needs all the energon cubes? And and it becomes very funny because he gives a almost like a BBC ish or like a like a like a very accurate assessment of if Unicron, <laughs> the, the planet eating robot, <laughs> you know, is coming into our world and <laughs> and, <laughs> and what we need to do to take it. And it's just it's comical. And uh, why am I bringing this up? Oh, because talking about movies seriously like this, like, you know, and uh, some of our most popular movies were Transformers the movie and G.I. Joe the movie, as we discussed. Well, we were just before we started rolling, we were talking about if we wanted to introduce a video component to the show, what would we do? We could do a movie geek roundtable, very serious, 
you know, like, Dion. <laughs> Tell like me. The, what you... Like the McLaughlin group. <laughs> Final answer. <laughs> Wrong. Next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, or like Crossfire. <laughs> yeah, movie, but with movies. We brought a Republican and a, a Democrat on to talk about Transformers the movie. It's like very. Um, but I don't know what. Um, yeah. But, but, I mean, I think everyone would readily agree they'd want us on YouTube. But I mean, you know, we can't bitch and complain because that's what we do all the time. But yeah. it's hard. It'd be hard to. We'd have to figure out how we would do it, produce it, put it on there. Uh, do we recycle old stuff we've already done or do we talk about movies we've done already um and redo it almost like an uh you know rehash or do we then or do we just rerun the old episode uh but then when we do that you know we would have to add some sort of uh video component yeah for people but people would would people want to watch us like they do nowadays you see people talking into microphones on youtube i don't know these i mean i wish we had a budget because what i i still think what the perfect youtube show would be is to have somebody build like Muppets of us, and, and we just listen to us talk, and just time? have somebody have somebody shoot <laughs> and the mime the Muppets to us. I don't think you've ever told me this. Oh, I think I brought it up on at least one of the episodes. I think the perfect idea. Are you sure? I mean, I mean that's, I, that's genius. But <laughs> just have. Puppet versions of us do the. Sh- do, do we have to be humans, or can we be like like a dog, or can I be like you know? Yeah, but I guess we could. Uh, we could. We could. We could be adventurous. You know, like uh, I could be your snuffleupagus. Maybe. Maybe I'm not really alive, and I'm in your mind. <laughs> well, I mean, that's out of that, That's shooting new dialogue. I'm saying, just taking the recordings as. It is. <laughs> oh, oh, you're talking about using the existing pod. Oh, that's a lot easier. Oh, I thought you meant. In conjunction with us doing new material, somebody's there doing the no, mining. No, no, I'm talking to the old material. Oh, so someone be listening there like, and still have to memorize it. Take our episode on John Carpenter's the thing. Take the audio and just and then a, have us and do a puppet show to it. We can always do like the the matchstick theater. Remember the um, on MTV Liquid Television they had the um, index card theater, whatever that was called. It was stick figure theater. And then they would have like two minutes of like stick figures. Like they would, they recreated yes. Night of the Living Dead or they did like the uh, Hendrix at Woodstock burning the Ours would be three and a half hours. Of, yeah, uh, the stick figure theater of us talking about. <laughs> that might be fun. I mean, it'd be cool to have us. I mean, with, you know, now with um, AI and Mid Journey and all those things, we could very easily animate <laughs> something. I don't know. If anybody cartoon. wants to take on doing a puppet Messages. version of one of the episodes. <laughs> but which would be really weird. It would be very <laughs> surreal. The background and everything. Give us give us a shout. I don't know if there's any we got any puppeteers out there that want wanna wanna produce the video component of yeah. uh, of our our old episodes. Meanwhile, we're f- almost 18 minutes into this first episode and we've uh we've said Merry Christmas. All right. And we've gone on so many detours. Right, let's um, get on. Let's get on track here. Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. <laughs> I'm Dion Baya, and I'm Jay Blake, and we're back kicking it for 2023 Christmas time. You last heard from us around Halloween time, when we had done covered such greats as John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness and Tales from the Crypt's uh, Television Terror, or. Terror, Terror television. television. Yeah, I'm always saying that backwards. I, I, I dyslexia. Remember. 
So we did those. That was a nice little bundle. We were going to try to do something for November, but that got away from us. We missed our anniversary episode. That got away from us. Been very busy. So we figured we'd hit us up at Christmas time. Close, do something before close the year. Close out the year. Yeah, close it on out. And what better movie to do? And I'm surprised we haven't done this movie yet because there's never really been any talk about holding on to this movie and putting it in our back pocket. Um, has there? <laughs> I don't, th- I I don't think so. I mean, Christmas no. Christmas time has always been like your... You know, Domain. I've always just... Defaulted. What would you like to do? Handed the reins over to Dion yeah. for Christmas. Yeah, and then I drive the sleigh like a bastard, and Blake always loses his hot cocoa out the side, and he spills his marshmallows all over while we're trying to sing carols. So we're we're this year, this year, this month, this yeah, this year actually, we're doing a Christmas story from 1983, which An is anniversary, a and it's a 40th anniversary. Yeah, how apropos. Um, and it's a big favorite amongst um, legions of people. And um, I guess one of the things we could talk about on this podcast episode is I remember back in the day when this wasn't recognized in the annals of history as this big, big thing. And it was almost kind of like the commercial commercialization of just the uh, uh, brainwashing of having this thing on so much on television while television still mattered that I'd say in the 2000s, maybe mid 2000s or so, you had TBS, you had maybe AMC. You had TNT, you had all these people playing 24, 48 hours. It's like they kind of do this now with uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where like during Christmas time at 8 o'clock, every night you'll have National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation on, or they're doing this with Elf now, where they'll just play the crap out of a Christmas story. So I feel like at some point, people, how can you not like Christmas Story at this point? Because they, they play 24, 48 hours of a Christmas story. Where um, when we were little, uh, I certainly don't remember it coming out when uh, the movie came out in the theaters. I really have no recollection of that. But I certainly remember it being on television or me seeing it at the video store and it being played enough on TV, you know, or in the Christmas season that it became a yearly staple for me. And, um you know, it got to the point where I remember watching it on Fox 61, which was the local Connecticut Fox affiliate, and I taped it off the TV and having it with the TV bars, and it just being a regular movie like you'd watch anything else. You know, and you liked, I liked it, you liked it because we were friends, or I mean, your, you know, your childhood friends, and you could identify with it because you were of the age, but it wasn't anything more than that. And I kind of feel like in the, not so much in the 90s, but in the 2000s is when it's kind of got its certification of iconic must watch TV for yeah, generations. Maybe late nineties. I kind of feel like it's really started kicking in a hard drive like around the time that we were in college. Yeah. Like around Christmas time. He started it was being aired a ton on TV and then those twenty four hour marathons started. I have like a I don't know. I have a I feel like I have a maybe it's atypical. I would love to hear from you, the listener if you feel this way about it, I have like a weird uh, relationship with the movie in that I remember seeing it. I think I watched it by myself at my dad's house on cable, you know, 
maybe not 40 years ago, but pretty close to it. <laughs> you know, definitely in the 80s. And uh, I, it, it's, yeah, it's a movie that I've always kind of liked, but I also have always, it's always been a standoffish movie to me because I feel like when I was little, I kind of found it like disturbing. And even today when you watch it, I understand why I felt that way. One, it's kind of old timey. It's pretty dark in terms of the way it looks. It's not that typical 80s film stock. There's like a grittiness to the way it looks that a lot of other movies of 1983 didn't have. Um, and there's just a lot of like weird things about it. Like, I just feel like the the way the brother cries, I always, it's like I have a very visceral reaction <laughs> to it. <laughs> like the, the piggy stuff is disturbing to me. I remember as a kid thinking the lamp was kind of very strange and a little bit weird and disturbing and that the mom didn't like it so much made it even more weird and disturbing to me. Obviously the Santa Claus scene is distur- is weird and disturbing. The, the, even the, I remember even as a kid thinking that, um, well, the soap in the mouth, even though that was like, you always heard that. Our, I got that. Yeah. But like the, but even like, I remember as a kid, even like the fact that, you know, Darren McGavin keeps trying to eat the turkey and the mother's like, you're going to get worms. It's not, it's not like he's trying to eat semi raw turkey. There's just like, there's so much of like the, the uh, tongue on the, on the pole. Every, like just so much about the movie that I, as a kid, like I found it, I found it disturbing. I found this movie kind of disturbing. It wasn't nightmare inducing at all. But to me as a kid, it was very, uh, I had a very uneasy feeling about it. And so I think that's always, you know, over the years, that's always been kind of in the back of my mind. It's like this movie, like in a, in a, in a minor way, kind of freaked me out as a kid. (laughs) That's why I've never been totally on board with how much people love this movie, even though I do enjoy it and watching it this time with you for this is probably my, the most I've enjoyed it. Um, but it's never been my movie, even though, like I said, I do, as I've grown up, I've had fond memories of it because of that viewing, you know, how like sometimes like the movie that really screwed you up with your kid, you know, like you kind of look back on that fond, like that experience, <laughs> even I would say this screwed me up, but it, it, this movie was, I, it created an uneasy feeling in me when I watched it the first time as a, as a young Saturday night movie sleepover uh uh watcher. Um I certainly gotten kind of not sick of it, but I by the time we hit college, I kind of put this one away for a good decade because it was just it was on so much. It was kind of like with pulp fiction as well. It's like it's on so much, I know it so well, I tried to get rid of it and just try to to just you know, let it sit on the shelf for a couple of years so it can kind of come back and I can come back and be fresh at it to, to me. Um, I certainly understand, you know, what you're saying, like the film stock and um, the look. Um, growing up, it, it and even still now, it's, for me, it seems like it's like um, my biggest complaint a lot of with period films, especially nowadays, is just, spe- you know, especially your stuff seeing that they shoot these days. It just looks too clean. It looks like for me, people who are just in Halloween costumes running around, um, and then if you look in the far background, you just see like modern cars. They just shut. They just turn the sh- you know they sh- shut the street off. All the period cars look 
you know, brand new, you know, because of course, because they're collectors cars. And if you look down the street, you could see where they close the street off. You could see modern cars passing by, you know, so it's like, I always have a problem these days. Um, with period films because they don't look authentic to me. There's certain films like say like Carlito's Way or certain movies that I think do have an authentic feel that look really good. Of course, Black Dynamite, I thought, you know, that comedy from a couple years ago cuz they shot that on I think on Reversal Film. That looked great. Uh for Christmas Story, I always thought it looked so much of its time of the 40s. Like it looks like they went back in time and shot it. Uh, you know, with because the cars don't look like they're brand new. You have these hulks sitting, uh, you know, in alleyways or on front lawns or back lawns. You know, the the um, different eras of car, like much like you'd see in anybody's neighborhood at the time of like you know stuff with their wheels off or just like the the outline of a older car that's been abandoned or. Um, uh, the art deco ness of the houses. I mean, they shot this in Cleveland, and uh, I've gone to Cleveland twice with work covering news, and uh, I was didn't get to go to the Christmas Story house where they shot the exteriors to, which I'm really mad about because I didn't realize until after it happened that I had a chance to go. But I got to go to the downtown area where the green is, where it looks like where the department store is and all that kind of stuff, and. Um, what struck me about Cleveland, a lot of these other burgs, is as we've mentioned before, I grew up in New Haven and in the suburb Hamden, Connecticut. Uh, for me, growing up watching Christmas Story, to me, it looked like they shot that in New Haven and Hamden. I mean, the, the the school he goes to looks like my elementary school I went to. I mean, identical, you know, that kind of 1920s when they started rebuilding schools in America and that has that look of a, you know, that, that not an institution, but it has that kind of look. Um and the houses and the neighborhoods of those two, three family houses looked exactly like um, where I grew up and went, went around. So I think that was one of the reasons that I, I loved the movie as a kid, because for me, it just looked like it was the neighborhoods I grew up in. So then when I went to Cleveland, I was so struck at how the neighborhoods of, look, of Cleveland looked like where I grew up, New Haven. And I think a lot of the burgs of the area of the Northeast and you know in this area, the old industry burgs have that kind of look. And I always thought to me, gosh, if I can't make the movie I want to make in New Haven where it takes place, I'll just go to Cleveland and shoot it because it just looks like the back streets. But to round up this long uh, point, it's just that I think it's always been very accessible to me because of how cool it looked of the era and then of of how the streets and everything look like. Uh, it was in the neighborhoods I grew up in. And um, I do agree with you that it does have these dark moments, which is funny, um, which I guess people find cute or people can find kind of uh, uh, distancing. And I don't know if that's an element of being at Bob Clark or them trying to also go for the adult demographic to, for, you know, with, of course, the leg lamp and all this stuff. It's something that brings in. Uh, a little adultness to the satirization of uh, Gene Shepard's commentary on it all. It must have been a very conscious choice between Bob Clark, the director, and the writer. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's even to this day. when I, Even though we just watched it <clears throat> in, my, uh, in my mind's eye when I think of this movie, it's still kind of disturbing to me <laughs> does anybody be, ask you the listener yeah did, did you I, ever I, find this movie disturbing i do think that the lamp is disturbing like i think as a kid i had you know I, obviously like when you get 
you're a certain age and you start to think about sexuality in a way, even though you don't know, you don't, you're not thinking of it in those terms. No, I was. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I think there's, I think the lamp musters up certain feelings. And when you're, when you're little, it, uh, I think it was disturbing. It was like this disembodied leg. So for me to play Dr. Spock, and I'm not talking about Star Trek's Dr. Spock. I'm not Mr. Um, Spock. Uh, yeah, not Mr. Spock. I'm playing Dr. Spock. And we're sitting on the couch. So for you, the young Jay Blake, um, for every boy, I think the intention of the lamp is to be like, ooh, you're t- indicating repressed feelings. What's that? We like girls. We don't know what they are yet. Remember, he, Ralphie tries to run his hands on the leg, yeah. and then when he gets to the mom, doesn't like it. So let me try to formulate this question. You, what you find disturbing is the sexual suggestion as a kid of reading the lamp, uh, and or also, uh, what's her name, Melinda Dillon's reaction as a mom that dad would bring this into the house and there'd be this kind of tension, and that he liked it so much. Who, Darren McAvin? Yeah. Well, now and then to read in, this is like an adjunct. Sidebar: Does Darren McAvin like it because it's a leg, or does Darren McAvin like it a little more just because it's like the only thing he's ever been awarded? I think, it, as a, an adult watching yeah. it, I think it's more like it's a it's a big pro, it's a what has he? It's a, I forget how he what term he uses. It's a something prize. It's a it's an, it's a very important prize. Like I think in hindsight, as an adult, I watch it. I think he likes it more because like he. It, he's won it, and he's not yeah, a winner. He's never won. He's not anything in his life, <clears throat> and so and like it's unfortunate how it looks. But yeah, but as a wants, kid, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I thought about it in either terms. I just knew it was like this disembodied leg. There cer- certainly was a sexual overtone to it, and the mom was really disturbed by it and hated it. And I think those are the things that I was reacting to. Uh, as a kid. You can envision your mom being there. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, you know. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was a mama's boy, and I think especially you, when you grow up with a single mom, I think you have a, a, a relationship with your mother that uh, that uh, that people who grow up with both parents have. You know, it's a different, it's a slightly different relationship. Um, so that, I mean, that's just like an example. But I, you know, there's just a lot of even the idea of like you shoot your eye out, and then he does hurt himself. Like yeah. I remember being disturbed by that. Like I said, like there's a lot of things in it that I just remember. Like I said, it didn't like induce nightmares in me, and it didn't scar me for life or anything. But I just remember as a kid feeling uneasy about the movie. It certainly bucks a trend where when we always lament when you go to our era of the 80s growing up and then a little for the 90s, but specifically for the 80s, we always say that, you know, people at that time of age are reminiscing about the 50s. So, of course, we talk about Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, um, or in movies like... um, uh, American Graffiti or the movies that were the horror movies that were re- being remade at the time. Uh, but this kind of bucks the trend because the um, author is slightly older. He's reminiscing for an era before that. It's like it's like our grandparents era. Yeah. 
So it's pre-World War II, and I think this is the perfect time for this story to take place. If this, in fact, is um, December 1940, which is a year before we get into the war, we're bombed in Pearl Harbor's December of 41. Uh, we're still kind of in that bliss of, I mean, depression's still on, of course, but if you're a kid living in the suburbs of a working town, be it a factory town or something like that, and you're going to school and you're, you know, he looks like he's lower middle class, um, you know, uh, or, you know, lowest you could be middle class, but dad's trying to do what he can to keep the family going, but you could tell the car doesn't start every day or they're having problems with the furnace or yeah. the lights, you know. So, I mean, who knows if they own the house or they if they rent the house. They probably own the house, but... So, um, what's my point of all this? Uh, oh, so like it, it is very iconic of the era and it's, it's, you could see why in the eighties, uh, a, a studio saying like, why would we be interested in learning about a kid or a story about a kid who wants a Red Ryder BB gun? Because at the time I didn't know what Red Ryder was. And no. I, although Annie was big when we were little, because they did the musical of Annie, that was a kind of a, a movie hit. But when they talk about or Little Orphan Annie, when they say it so quickly in that context, I never made the, you know, the the connection that Little Orphan Annie is Annie that we knew from the theaters. Yeah. Um, and you know, now knowing Red Rider and all these different other things, and you know, like the Lone Ranger, of course, I knew what the Lone Ranger was because it was in syndication when I was little on TV on like Saturday or Sunday mornings, you know, and I knew what radio and this could have been. Uh, one of the movies that got me into like listening to radio, we always talk about what got us into listening to suspense or at the library going to check out those stuff and Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Yeah. So uh, watching this now, I was wondering, maybe this is something that got me turned on to like opening the idea that I would be interested in that. But it is, getting back, it is an interesting idea to have this story that takes place in the 40s and it's a slightly older person writing it because he's probably, what, in his 50s or 60s maybe, if I were to, to check his age uh, when he did this. You know, so it is interesting that they didn't want to change this. Now, he's born 1921, so he would have turned 102 this year uh, in July. So, yeah, he's probably in his 60s when he's writing, you know, uh, this story in the, either in the 1960s, 1970s. Which means so, he would, like, in this, I mean, he would have been, like, 20. <laughs> yeah, in 1940, yeah, because if, if he, yeah, he would have been graduating high school, college. So his era, for this to be accurate, it should have been the early to mid thirties. Yeah, for him to be the age that that he would have been. But uh, you know, you know, whatever. It's he he. I mean, look, there's actually a lot to unpack. Uh, I don't know how you how, we how well. Let's just start. Open the open the steamer trunk. I mean, start obviously, like I, I would start with Bob Clark, but. And yeah, like we can start but, putting stuff on. But hangers. really, it starts with with Gene Shepard. Well, let's start with Bob Clark, just for the sake of it's a good connection because you're talking about how the movie disturbed you. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> I think Bob Clark has something to do with that. And yeah. if people don't know, this is another thing that astounds me: people who love this movie, you know, they may not know Darren McGavin. They probably know Peter Billingsley now because you know. He's kind of kind of made a name for himself, especially in the comedy kind of romantic comedy or comedy movies. But nobody knows who Darren McGavin is unless you make re reference. And then no one's going to know if you say who Bob Clark is and who Bob Clark is in relation to, like, filmographies and yeah. stuff. Well, Bob Clark is a kid. I don't know if... I don't know much about, like, his... 
I don't know I'm, much about Bob Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess. Looks like he was an American filmmaker, but he started his his career in Canada. In Canada, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was an American, U.S. Uh, citizen, but uh, his career starts in Canada. And um, he is, in my estimation, probably one of the most, arguably one of the most underrated filmmakers of all time. All time. In sheer fact of... Uh, his eclectic filmography, most of which most people haven't seen. But the fact that, you know, I think of a guy like, I always just used to marvel at the fact that Billy Wilder could make Double Indemnity and also Some Like It Hot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you, you don't see filmmakers that get to, or, you know, Howard Hawks could produce the thing, could make Rio Bravo, and also make Bring Up Baby. You know, like... The idea that a filmmaker can dabble in different genres as as freely and as uh, expertly is kind of a lost art form. You know, I think it was for me. I think it was more common not for me, but it seemed like it was more common back in those studio system days because you were directed for hire. But yeah. e- but even like but what, getting to the, what you're talking about of the era of Clark, which is his coming up in the '60s and '70s. It's yeah. far and fair between because you're not having a studio dictating what you're doing next. Yeah. I mean, one, yeah, the studio system is a whole other thing that we don't need to get down. But just the idea that someone could be so proficient in looking back on it. And because we are of a generation where filmmakers usually make a certain kind of movie. And that's the kind of movie they make. Swarren Scorsese makes Martin Scorsese movies. And sure, he's made King of Comedy uh but even his comedies, King of Comedy, uh, Pete's Dragon, <laughs> you know, even even his comedies, there's a like, there's like a gritty, disturbing aspect to them. Um, and sure, like John Carpenter has made horror movies and he's made action movies, but you know, there you don't you don't you might straddle one or two you might straddle two genres, but little. It's not frequent that someone would make, practically invent the the slasher genre with uh, Black Christmas, like Bob this Clark Bob, did. Yeah, Bob Clark. Yeah, Bob Clark starts his career like many filmmakers did, working in almost you know mostly in the horror genre with Children Should Play with Dead Things. Black, Good movie, Black Christmas. Uh, well, people don't realize Death Dream. I can try. There's there's a couple of different titles for one of his other horror movies. Go ahead. Well, pe- people don't realize that yes, Christmas Story isn't his first Christmas movie. <laughs> and then when you bring up Black Christmas, um, I think listeners of this show will know a reference to Black Christmas if not have already seen it, if not have already listened to our episode we did pretty early on about it, yeah. which I think you contend is like one of your favorite episodes. Yeah, I like our. I think we. I think yeah. that was one of the episodes we where we started kind of like hitting our. You could see glimpses of what the show is going to become when we. Yeah, because it was a very Christmas. early. It was only like the fifth or sixth episode. It might have been the first Christmas. Yeah. Episode we did for Christmas time, and um, I don't think people realize, uh, barring our listeners again. But the cultural significance, like you're saying, of a Black Christmas, because everyone always 
kind of gives uh, Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, the the title of the first quote-unquote popular version of a slasher movie. Or they may even go at, not Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but there's something else at the time, I forget, that's before Halloween that some people may cite. But Black Christmas certainly has a lot of freaking elements of stuff that people... Uh, take for granted nowadays and yeah. that you can marvel at that like he's doing this brand new um and then of course there was a remake in the 2000s of black christmas which i remember being okay when i saw it and there's been a, like another one which isn't really a remake they just call it black christmas oh okay but it's it's less a remake than the than the other one which the other one is, is good it's really yeah i remember weird. i remember liking it <laughs> Well, yeah, that's how you, you just make it weird, and it's like, oh, okay. Uh, but the original is, like, strikingly good. Yeah. Striking, I mean, of course, go back and listen to our whole episode on it. Uh, but I as mean, we said in there, it's just disturbing and inventive and new and uh, everything. The ending has, is messed up. You know, it has the el- almost all of the elements of what we think of as a paint-by-numbers slasher movie. Bob Clark kind of does it maybe four or five years before Carpenter does it with Halloween. I mean, the, even the fact that it's Christmas movie, you know, Halloween, the, the success of Halloween led to, you know, my bloody Valentine silent night, deadly night, the idea of April fool's day, you know, the idea of doing it like on these Friday, the 13th, the idea of doing it on these dates that starts that even that starts with black Christmas. But anyway, so Bob Clark kind of almost, Invents the the slasher genre. That's 1974, right? Maybe 73, 74. Yeah, 74. Because yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is already around that time. Is also yeah. around that time. And between the to- the two of those movies, they basically invent every convention that becomes a slasher movie. And more then we so see Black Christmas. Halloween is what 78, right? 78. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then also kind of like maybe not invents, but is definitely very early on in the teen sex genre with porkies yeah exactly and that's around the time this movie comes out christmas story comes out so he makes porkies porkies and then he makes you know rhinestone classic (laughs) classic (laughs) but you know okay take a look at the horror movies take a look at porkies take a look at christmas story but then he also makes murder by decree which is another Saturday night movie sleepover fade between Yeah, Dion that's and the I. movie he he does right before this movie, uh, Murder by Decree, which is a real left turn for people. Um and when I growing up when I people didn't know it or care for it when I was growing up and I knew it it was one of those movies back when A and E was actually arts and entertainment television. You'd see them playing that along with the Beguiled, they play like Murder by Decree, you know, and you'd see it and my mom was a movie she loved. So I'd watch it with her, and I'd, I'd love that movie. And it's basically an earlier version of Alan Moore's uh, From Hell. Yeah. You know, yeah. but which is also based off of... There's, uh, a, I forget, there's a book and a theory yeah. that both of them are based off of. And I forget the name of the book because I own it. And it's it's a, it's it came out around that time in the late 70s purporting about the whole, inch, in, you know, the thing about... Murder by Decree is basically... It brings Sherlock Holmes into the story. So it's like a historical fiction. He goes after Jack the Ripper. And then the idea of Jack the Ripper being connected to the royal family, which is something you see in From Hell, um, which they changed Jack the Ripper, they changed Sherlock Holmes out kind of in From Hell with the Johnny Depp character, which I'm not saying Alan Moore consciously did, yeah. but uh, Murder by Decree does it really well. And then they have like Donald Sutherland in there as a psychic. There's a lot of interesting yeah, things. It's in, a great movie. Yeah. 
Genevieve Bougeau has a scene. It's yeah, Christopher Plummer and uh, James Mason. Yeah, Christopher Plummer playing Sherlock and Mason playing um, Watson. My pee, Holmes. I need to get to my pee. <laughs> and it's a, it's like a, they did it on the studio lots, so that's very inventive. It's certainly a movie that I'm surprised we haven't done here yet. Nor I don't know if there'd be an audience for it if we did it on here. Yeah, you know, since we're but far. It's a great between. movie that you and I both love, and I think you probably introduced me to it. Um, way back in the day. But uh, so Bob Clark, a guy who straddles genres like nobody's business, went on to make baby geniuses. Yeah. Uh, you know, great filmmaker who has had success in in many genres and unfortunately died kind of tragically, I believe, if I recall correctly, in a car accident with his Yeah, he was him and his son both died. I think they were in Alaska. I remember when it happened. And I want to say it was twenty 20- 2007 or so he was they were driving they were hit by a drunk driver and they were both killed um and very tragic at the time for that happening yeah so uh this goes back so bob clark at some point in his single days i don't know exactly what time period we're looking at but he's on his way to pick up a date in the car and he has the radio on and he hears this radio personality named gene shepherd reciting stories of his growing up in the Midwest on the radio on the radio. I don't think it's, I don't think he's talking about the Christmas stuff, but he just hears this guy on the radio and he's listening to it. And he's really intrigued. So intrigued that when he gets to his date's house, he starts circling the block so he can finish the story. (laughs) And he ends up being 45 minutes late for his date because he's listening to this guy, G this radio personality Gene Shepard. He's so mesmerized by this guy's storytelling. And he makes a note to himself. He's like, I have to make a movie with this guy at some point. I have to figure out who this guy is, what his deal is. And he decides he wants to make a movie with Gene Shepard. Um, and that was a, that was a kind of a, in that era, if we're talking 60s, 70s, that was a huge thing that, you know, you'd have these radio people giving, you know, radio was much more of a bigger industry at the time. So you had people like Paul Harvey, uh, Gene Shepard, you'd come on and you'd give a, like, maybe without a script, they would say Gene Shepard wasn't using a script a lot and they would give reminisce or give a speech or, you know, certainly a lot of it was religious in some aspects. Other people were just giving commentary about colorful anecdotes of their history. Um, I forget what was the name of the radio show that just ended some years ago, but it was the, they used to do a radio play every Sunday in Minneapolis or somewhere, uh, something company. Oh, they would, it was a comedy and they were, they would do it like it's a radio show, but it was very funny. And the name escapes from right now, but they've been going on for many, many, many years. Um, so this was a great institution that kind of was, is by the wayside, but I guess Shepard was working also for WOR, which is a very famous radio station in New York city. And that was, he was streaming out of there and, you know, he was getting, syndicated all across the country and you were hearing these stories and people got to know him and liked his particular style. So stories that he would narrate or he would write short columns for in like Playboy magazine or Mad magazine or different kind of weekly publications. Yeah. So it was, he was this radio personality that became known for reciting these stories that he would probably based in truth but also probably heavily dramatized for effect uh, about uh, himself or a youth growing up in the Midwest. And I think we're allegedly <clears throat> at some point, I think it was maybe Shel Silverstein who was like, Hey, you should put these 
you should write a book. You should have like a book. So he ends up writing a novel, uh, which was a collection of kind of these types of stories called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which I think was, I don't know, 1961 maybe. Mm. That that comes that that, he, that comes out, and then it's stories from that book, chapters from that book, in conjunction with a few stories from another book that he writes called uh, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters, that <laughs> become the basis of what becomes uh, a Christmas story. And you can find on YouTube him reading. Like the chap, like the chap, like the main chapter from, uh, in God We Trust on YouTube, like old like radio broadcasts of him. yeah, like the little vignettes of these different stories they kind of put together to make this bigger story. And Amazon even has a uh, you can buy a, the book, which is where they've taken all the chapters from the two books that comprise all the stories and. A Christmas kind of story, and they have it in a, a Christmas story book. But initially, they were published as kind of chapters or short stories in these two books. And those stories were then kind of handpicked, cherry picked, and made into a, a Christmas story. And as Dion was kind of saying or indicating, uh, Christmas story was a very hard sell in the early 80s. Um, and you know, the idea that this would be a heavily narrated thing, which was narration was not uh, a convention that was used often anymore in cinema. The fact that, as Dan pointed out, it's it's not looking back to the 50s, but it's looking back at the 40s. Um, there was just a lot of things about this movie that nobody really liked the idea uh, that it would be profitable. But Bob Clark was insistent that he wanted to make it. So when Porky's was a, six, was a success, the company obviously wanted him to make another Porky's movie. And he said, I'll make Porky. I'll make another Porky's movie if you let me make a Christmas story. And he ends up, I think, putting his own, you know, like fee into it to get it made. And he brings on uh, Gene Shepard, and uh, who helps write the script and and ends up ultimately being the narrator of the movie. And they said they've been they were toying with the idea, the concept for like ten years. Him and Shepard, I guess he he had met Shepard or they'd grown together, and they were kind of trying to come up with some sort of I guess uh, ultimate um, lit path or, or throughway. Uh, of them being able to take all these stories and make it some sort of concise thing. And um, I guess back in that day, Shepard was kind of a popular name. People knew him from radio and stuff like that. He did a very legendary thing in the 50s where he was um, he started a campaign for a book that never came out called I Libertine, but it was a hoax where he made up a fake author <laughs> and he and he went on the radio to interview the fake author and talk about for people to go to bookstores and order the book. And the book wasn't even real. And it was just a power suggestion, kind of like Orson Welles with War of the Worlds. But it just kind of shows his humor and stuff. And a lot of this, I don't know if it was embellished, a lot of his his stories, um, you know, much like, say, Bill Cosby, when he does this comedy about the kids in childhood or growing up, when you're sourcing your own childhood or stories around you, there are people who go back, and if you look at Christmas Story, will cite the different places, because where he grew up in Indiana, where the Christmas Story 
movie film takes place, even though it was filmed in Cleveland. Uh, they can cite Cleveland Street, which was in Indiana. Uh, the, the school is a real school that he went to, the elementary school. The department store or the flick and the real people wore real people in his life. And he just cherry-picked all these things and made it into a, uh, into a, a concise story. And it's interesting, you look at it, if you break it down, the vignettes, there are like, uh, you know, interesting multiple storylines going on and going through. Which, um, you know, I never, watching the movie as a kid, you don't realize, but it's like, oh, there's all these different subplots. You know, you have the, you know, Ralphie's adventures with his friends, them trying every every day to get get away from the bullies, you know, Ralphie waiting for the decoder ring, uh, his father fighting the never-ending battle with the, with the boiler, the father fighting the dogs every morning, um, you know, uh, uh, the, him getting wanting the BB gun, them being tormented by the bullies every day going to school. So there's all these different things that come together that in itself could be just little adventures. But the through line is almost the Christmas is coming, and I want my BB gun, and this is how everything ties together and is you know kind of connects all to the end. Yeah, I mean it's a you know it ends up creating a very uh, detailed world, all these little vignettes, you know, because the the realist the, the reality is, we all have various storylines going on in our lives <laughs> at at any given time, you know. We're not sure we're we're looking forward to an event, but there's all these other things happening. So I think it, I mean, it really works well, and I think they do kind of a brilliant job of creating a very believable detailed world from the fact that it's like you said, I mean, all these things are kind of cherry picked from various stories. If you listen to him read the chapter about the Red Rider BB gun uh, from an old radio show, it, whether it's an abridged version or, or a longer version, you know, like a lot of the dialogue that he says is the exact dialogue in the movie. So, they kind of do a great, an, an amazing job of staying completely true to the original source material, but taking these different elements and, and like interweaving them into a cohesive, full story. It's really kind of um, amazing. Uh, you know, like I said, watching it this time, because I honestly, I probably haven't seen it in its entirety since the nineties, you know, like you, it's, it's on so much and you might catch, you catch like a half hour of it around Christmas or, and you move on or, you know, things come up, you catch it in chunks over the years but yeah. to sit down and watch it from beginning to end and see, see it. But also, you know, we've said in, in the past, the way at least I do, and I think Dion does too, when we do this show, you, we watch the movies with like two different sets of glass goggles on when we do it for the show. We do it one because we have to talk about it and analyze it. So we have to be, uh, you know, we're watching it for those reasons. So we have to pay attention to those kinds of things. But at the same time, we're also trying to watch it with fresh eyes and try to remember what it was like as a kid to watch it for the first time. So it's this weird kind of polarity that we have to watch, that we try to watch these movies with to be, 
you know, analytical, but also be completely free. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. you know, like they're kind of like two opposites. Um, but watching it this time, you know, it was definitely a movie that watching it its entirety now at age 45 compared to, you know, as a teenager or whatever in its entirety or as a little child, uh, totally, it's one of those movies that totally hit me in a different way. One, you notice that this style of narration that everybody thought was out of date or weird in 1983 becomes the basis of the wonder years. I mean, really, yeah, you know, yeah. the popularity you get, you get that whole wonder years, which I don't know. I guess they rebooted the wonder years since I don't know how far that went, but yeah, like it, it so it kind of rejuvenates this kind of storytelling or creates it really yeah, it gets it. Yeah. Uh, like the wonder years becomes a, an 80s show nostalgic for the sixties with a, with a grown up narrator reciting his stories as a child. And that's and that exactly became a phenomenon in itself, right? That ran for what a decade. I would it, say it ran least. for a long time, but it also Kevin, especially as the younger Kevin had these like outlandish fantasies, just like Ralphie does in this movie. Like I remember a specific episode where he's, you know, they're talking about, I think it's when he starts to f- have the hots for Winnie or something. He starts, starts to feel sexual feelings for the first time. And there's like a Star Trek dream sequence. You oh, know, really? Like a fantasy sequence where he's Kirk and Winnie and her friends are an alien. <laughs> are like aliens and Paul is, uh, is Spock, you know? So even at least early on when Kevin is, is young in the one year, he's also having these very like detailed great wacky dream sequences or daydream sequences. Clearly Gene Shepard also was very in touch with his childhood, um, which in a way that I'm not sure adults of previous generations were, or maybe that's just speculation on my part. I think Dion and I, I think the reason why we like doing the show and maybe why we're able to connect with people and doing a show like this is because I think we're still very in touch with our childhoods. And I think that's one of the things that makes this movie kind of great. I think people look at it. I mean, what's the thing that, what's the thing that really children have that don't, that adults tend to lose as we grow up innocence, but also like this sense of like wonder and active imagination, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's one of these things that, you know, I think we connect with in this movie is that Ralphie's imagination is so big and yeah. it's so great um, that we kind of miss that part of ourselves. I mean, I remember, you know, as a kid, like when you were out there playing G.I. Joe or whatever, and not with the figures, but you're out there with your fake. Playing like war. Yeah. Or, what, yeah. or whatever your game of choice is, X-Men. You know, I remember going through a phase of that or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When you're out there yeah. and you're doing it, like, it's real. <laughs> yeah, sure. You're you're dreaming it. You know, you're... it's, it's a, it, it was virtual reality. Yeah. Except for it was in our heads. And that's what's happening with, that's what happens with these dream sequences for Ralphie and then later, you know, Kevin and the Wonder Years. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that we really connect with and what, and a beautiful aspect of this movie even though, um, you know, it, and there's really only a handful of them, and there's really only like a couple of them. 
There's the one with the Blackbeard Black or Blackbart, and then there's yeah. He has you know the ones in the in the the classroom in the soap poisoning. What oh, yeah. brought you to this lonely <laughs> state? Soap poisoning. You know, or they had one that they deleted, which I'd love to see. Um, they did a Flash Gordon one, which was very yeah. And there's some, apparently the there's a still of it you can find at some. That would have been cool. They keep and it looks. Pers- I mean, just from the still, it looks really cool. And the guy that they were having play Flash Gordon looked exactly like the Flash Gordon. Well, from that's, the, that's awesome from the serials. But I completely agree. I mean, growing up, you know, being of his age. Uh, I was engaging in all the things Ralphie was engaging in. I was looking out the window, daydreaming about whatever at the time was popular, cops, Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe, Transformers, comic books, drawing, uh, being miles away in class, thinking about all these things, getting out of school, going home with my friends. Um, In my elementary school, I would walk back and forth. I was close enough to walk back and forth to school until I hit middle school and high school. That's when I had to take a bus. Um so, you know, I engaged in all that. And then, uh, you know, being in a place like Connecticut growing up where we had the changing of the seasons, so we would get winters that looked like this. It was very much Christmas time was uh, uh, having a winter area and, and being able to, to, to have all this stuff. So very much it is kind of uh, the thing that, you know, uh, I agree with that it, that it was it's something that's really identifiable for people of our age and generation. To, to latch on to and realize, um, which ends up being really cool because you can, it, it's something that you're, you know, I, I think that's what brought me so quickly and closely to this story was that, you know, that I identified so much with Ralphie, what he wanted. I didn't particularly want to be begun growing up, but for people of his era, that was something that, you know, you, you, you'd want, you'd, you know, and, and I could, and you could, that could be the MacGuffin for whatever. You know, yeah. you want whatever toy you wanted growing up if you're looking for something big like a, a USS Flag aircraft carrier or something like this, um, you know, that's what the MacGuffin would be. Sure. I mean, yes, definitely. It's universal. Uh, I mean, I, I assume that kids are still like this, but definitely uh, through the 80s, you know, we were still very much, like you said, there's the toy we want. There's the friends. There's the idea of the triple dog dare or whatever. Maybe we didn't use those terms. Maybe we did. But there's the relationship with you have with your friends. There's the bullies that you're afraid of, which is another thing. I think the bu- I think the bully in this movie was very scary to me as a, as a kid, as well. Um, and then playing Peter and the Wolf, the intro of him coming, you know, do 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 do, and seeing him, it was all very, you know. And Fargus, his little, uh, is that his name? Fargus is the sidekick. Or no, the, no, he's Fargus, and the other sidekick is, um, I forget the guy's the little kid's name. Yeah. But it was it was almost it was exactly like a bully, and again, I find that just the movie so authentic in a sense because of him. You know, everything looks everything looks great. Everything looks the same. Everything looks like of the time and era. And there's nothing to me that seems out of place. But it's also a movie that you could have done at any time. Yeah, of course. It you could know. have been a 70s movie. It could have been an 80s movie. Like, I don't know if we talked about... I know last year we did, um, you know, how, like, uh, just recommendations for Christmas. And I don't remember what all my recommendations was, but there's a movie that's kind of an, a more recent movie that's kind of an 80s version of this called 8-Bit, which the kid, yeah. the kid wants a Nintendo. Oh, I've seen, I saw the, the name of that on the, uh, 
you know, when I was looking up this movie. It's good. It's 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 actually really good, but it's it's definitely our generation's version of Christmas story. He's telling yeah. his daughter about the time that he wanted a uh you know, a Nintendo. And so he has this like flashback and he's narrating the story about trying to get a Nintendo for Christmas. So it's very consciously ripping off today's version of of that movie trying to be like hey let's do a christmas story for for people of our generation you know um ain't that just so weird i mean like we're old enough now to be like you know that that was i don't know again going down that weird hole of um, becoming an adult where it's like that doesn't seem too long ago for me but of course people weren't alive then and it's just yeah like, we you know, think about like if they re- i mean yes they did a remake of the wonder years but it still takes place in the 60s yeah. If they did the remake if they did a remake of the Wonder Years that was realistic, It'd be the 80s, right? It would 90s. be it would be like 2003. <laughs> because it was late 80s. It was 20 years after. Bef- it was tw- like the show airs yeah. 20 years after the events of the show. So I mean really like the Wonder Years today, you know, Marty McFly today would be jumping into DeLorean and going back to like 2003. <laughs> to just oh, God, isn't that insane? You know, you wouldn't even be going back to the eighties. No, you wouldn't. No, that's too long. That'd be like that would be like Marty McFly in the eighties going back to what the he goes thirties. He goes back to well the eighties. He goes back to the fifties. Yeah, I know, but I mean, like if I'm talking about now. So I mean, I guess if he'd Marty be going McFly back, jumped into. I guess Marty would be going back to the nineties now. Yeah, but if Marty McFly jumped into DeLorean at what was that thirty years? Um, so it was the it was the eighties to the eighty five to fifty five, but if we wanted him now to go back to the eighties, which is what forty years ago, he'd be going back to the thirties. He'd be yeah. going back to like the depression. He'd be going back to this time of of his dad being young in the Christmas story or whatever, or you know his grandparents or his parent. I don't know. Yeah, his parents being. But like I mean, kids. that's that's the crazy yeah. thing. It's like we time is, has passed so much. But yeah, I think one of the things about christmas story is that it's universal it could be set in any time really i mean what's going on it is we can all relate to um the childhood angst of growing up and i mean the only thing they don't really talk about in this and this could be something i for years have been told that there were other versions of christmas stories that had been predated this that shepherd had written that had come out like the pbs things we could talk about um and I'm not talking about the sequels that were made directly because of A Christmas Story, but um, there's a Fourth of July one and stuff like that. I'm talking about, like, the only thing I don't think this really addressed is any kind of angst a child of that age may have with a girl. or a, a, You know, like, there's no time for that since it's the Christmas season. Yeah. So you don't really have any situation where he's likes a girl, trying to kiss a girl or whatever. I mean, you do... Obviously, I think he likes girls and women or whatever. That's, you know, well, the attraction. I, th- I think in a lot of ways, we maybe don't think of it in a traditional way, but this movie is very much like a coming-of-age yeah. story. And the I, lamp represents all Yeah, that. I mean, I think the lamp is, I think, represents, like, his first urge or the yeah the, his first like fast and his the beginning of his fascination yeah. with women happens in this movie i think the, the idea of the red rider being become to him is a symbol of adulthood you know yeah. like to him it's like i can fend off grizzly bears i can i can 
safe marauders and stuff pads, you know like yeah, it's from black bar it's not a toy it's this like it's the symbol of like oh if i have this then i'll be like it'll, it'll it's, he's he's wanting to be a grown-up which i think yeah. which i think is what uh is a very important part of childhood that i think maybe some movies about childhood don't really capture i mean i remember i mean they're obviously a lot older in rebel without a cause but i i was messing around with this guitar lick and then i woke up early one more sunday morning and rebel without a cause was on turner classic movies and i watched it i hadn't seen it since maybe i was a teenager certainly not in its entirety and I was trying to write this song, and I couldn't write this. So I couldn't write a song. I'm not a, really a songwriter, um, but I wanted to start trying to write original songs. And there's a scene in Rebel Without a Cause where Natalie Wood and James Dean and uh, what's the Salminio? They're like kind of playing house. Yeah, they're up in the house, and he's walking around, and he's showing her the house. That yeah. it's the it's the. The abandoned house in the hills yeah. near the end by the Griffith Observatory. But they're like pretending that they're married. And the, yeah. And so I ended up writing the song and I called it Song for Judy because her name in the, in the movie is Judy. And it's and the song is about this girl who wants to grow. She wants to grow up faster than she need, than she. She's a kid and that she should appreciate being a kid now because when you're grown up, you're going to wish you were a kid. <laughs> like, yeah. That's like, what you don't realize. You know, like, so no. that, you know, obviously they're teenagers in that movie, but I think that's a constant. I was thinking, you know, walking behind kids on the street and, in, and obviously in New York, any given street will have scaffolding. Yeah. Or a tree on the side, you know, on, depending on what street in Midtown, there maybe will be one tree. And yeah. You always see like kids, or walking behind walking behind a family with kids of a certain age, they always try to jump up and hit things. Yeah. You know, I remember as a kid trying to jump up and hit like the doorway. Yeah, or a leaf on the tree. <laughs> yeah, a leaf on the tree. Yeah. And I was like I was thinking to myself, like, why is it that like young boys want to be able like want to jump and hit things? I think it's because like you just you want to be bigger. Yeah. You want to grow up. And so I mean in a you know, ultimately, that's what I think the. That's what the that's what the the Red Rider BB gun is for Alfie. It's like the symbol of like okay, like he wants to be bar bar mitzvah. Like it's time for him to be a man. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's he's so anxious to be a man, and this symbol of this this gun, an adult thing, um, is that for him? And I think there's a lot of little things. Him be him being him beating up the bully. There's. You know, his relationship with his dad, you know, his dad kind of like hints about like, do you want a taste of the wine or whatever? It's not maybe your traditional coming of age story, but there's definitely an element of that in this. And I think the lamp in this case kind of represents that, like his sexual awakening is yeah, the peak <laughs> is like when he sees this lamp, the, the his younger brother is either, you know, He's kind of indifferent to it, or oblivious. He's kind yeah. of not really like he does. He obviously hasn't ha, doesn't have those feelings. But Ralphie has it's awakened something. Yeah, and, Ralphie. and certainly um, his mother realizes that. And uh, um, yeah, I certainly agree that him getting the the Red Rider 
certainly, you know, because of that era, you know, cowboys and Indians and the frontier, that whole idea of the Western and taming the far, the far off kind of exotic land, him being able to come in and, you know, take control of the town and protect people. And over the years watching this movie, I've always gotten a, a, a newfound respect for those little vignettes. Not so much. I mean, they've always, they kind of annoyed me when I was little because they were slightly sped up and stuff. And I didn't yeah. realize, you know, Black Bart, him being like the, you know, the quote unquote carbon copy of like, you know, with the black and white stripes of an outlaw and the black painted on like the eyes of like a domino over his eyes. But I've gotten the respect of, of listening to the dialogue of Ralphie walking in with the red rider and he's got like chewing tobacco in his mouth and he's the ardent professional and underneath his mother is dressed of like, you know, like what are we going to do? And his dad's got like the coonskin cap on like, um, Davy Crockett. Like, I'm so glad you came. Like they're, um, they're kind of settlers that are living like, you know, in the woods and you know, they're they're almost going to be taken off by, you know, by this, marauding gang if ralphie didn't come you know with his little orphan aunt not little orphan that's the dakota ring but the red rider bb gun with all this extra stuff and he's like let's take a look and he gets up you know he's got the gun and he's able i mean it's there's a lot of subtlety in it which i didn't really pick up on growing up um that i'm i I see a lot more especially with the darren mcgavin little the little parts darren mcgavin brings to it talking to the mom or the little asides or his jokes. I mean, we always know the, oh, fragile, it must be Italian. That always got a big laugh the first time you heard it. And now a lot of that's to me, is played out. Like, people say that all the time. Yeah. And it's so played out that some people don't even know what it's from or they don't know the joke anymore because it's almost gone full, full circle. But there's so much more stuff that Darren McGavin is doing with, with um, his mother, Melinda Dillon, and it's just... It's just funny. It, it's, just, it's all very interesting. You know, I growing up, I always loved when Flick got his tongue stuck to the flagpole everybody gets up and runs except uh, you know ralphie and his friend they just sit there you know because of course they're guilty and then you know growing up to me i never really knew if the teacher knew who did it but then us being adults now and if you were a teacher in that context you know who hangs out with who yeah so when she's when she certainly sees the entire class run up to look out the window except the two of them and then when she's standing in front of them Basically just staring them down. Like, I don't know who did this. And then, like, Ralphie's, like, looking around. <laughs> it's just so... Because that's what I would do. You know, you look at it just, you know... It's just so funny. The subtlety there I find very humorous. I yeah, find it it definitely. But I also remember... I also thought this time around watching that scene, like... Well, they didn't really do anything. I mean, it was, like, Fink's fault. I mean, like, they didn't... No, they just dared him into doing yeah, it. Yeah, like, left they... It's not like they... You know... You know, no, they didn't force him to. For, like held him. Yeah, <laughs> come on, hold Get him, him and like, like put his arm behind his back, make him say uncle, and then force his face, <laughs> and then smash his face. No, in the bowl. Like, they kind of they antagonized other... him into doing it, and then everyone just like the bell rang, and they run away. Yeah, you I mean, know, she's like, who put him up to this? I was like, well, I mean, I he mean did really, it he was his choice. Yeah. He didn't have to do. And then, it. And then uh, actually, the half the class was there watching. I mean, you think of all the onlookers and spectators, and that's. I mean, I don't keep the. I don't mean to keep hammering at home, but that's the authenticity I love about when you look out the window and you have that like, you know, really, really like um, long lens and it's across the field, but it still looks like it's the forties with the cars and the people showing up and the, it just, it's just so authentic, even down to the furniture, like the stuff in Ralphie's rooms and stuff. A lot of my 
um, furniture specifically growing up were hand-me-downs from my grandparents. That might have been my, my, my mom's. So like my desk in my house or my bureaus and stuff were like of that era. So all that's familiar to me. I mean, and aside from really having like the era of like the kind of wallpaper that looks very 40s, which I didn't have, um, all that, it's just everything just reeks of such authenticity that I really, you know, I, I, I'm kind of at home in all this kind of environment. And yeah, all this stuff. I mean, I think that's an element of the movie that, like, kid, like, show, like, even people who are 20 today won't connect with in the same way because, like, we did have, like, our grandparents, our parents were born in the 40s, you know, like we were around, like, could go to my grandparents' house, and even though maybe they bought that house. In the sixties, they didn't buy new furniture for that house. You know what I mean? No, like they moved, had all they the moved their furniture from their previous house. So that could have been from their parents or wedding, re- wedding presents yeah, and stuff. So, so that's all we were know, all filled with that. Yeah. We were, we have a, it's familiar. Like you're saying yeah. like that kind of the furniture, uh, all those things are kind of familiar to us in our childhoods in a the way. Creature that, comforts. You know, nowadays, you know, like furniture is kind of like disposable. You know, you it's just, Ikea. It's you, terrible. You fly and it costs $100. Yeah. Like, it lasts a couple of years and then it starts to get loose and wiggly and you throw it out and you get a new one. But back in the day, it was like these giant oak. Yeah. <laughs> it know? was an art to it. That was, yeah. It was made by somebody down the road. You know, really, me- that was his furniture designer was his hobby and trade. I remember my grandmother's furniture in her house had this very like, it was wood. It was beautiful, finished wood in her bedroom. The dresser, the, you know, the makeup table, which she didn't wear makeup, but, you know, it was that kind of thing, a mirror. It was all, it had this very, like, art deco vibe to it. And I, I'm, and my, my, my aunt may have that, that uh, furniture now if she still has it, but that's, it was beautiful. Even as a kid, I remember looking at it and being like, well, this is, you know, like, like we didn't have furniture like that at our house. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah, I mean, there was like a craftsmanship and a beauty to it, a design. So the that's art, all lost nowadays. The, the art of design—it was yeah. really gorgeous, but it was all kind of like very old timey. And even um, my grandmother st- was was still using a uh, a sewing machine where you had the rock. Oh, the bottom stair. Yeah, the pedal. Like yeah, the it, was, yeah, it yeah. wasn't like it wasn't electric. Yeah. It was it was man powered. You know. Yeah, she- we have we had a couple of those growing up, um, which were they were night they were nightstands. So it was a nightstand that you can open up, flip the sewing machine up onto it, and then you'd have the pedal down the bottom, and you'd be able to pedal it, and then for storage purposes, you could flip the sewing machine down, put the thing yeah. back up, and then it was a nightstand with a little drawer. You know, yeah. you could put like a a cloth over it and then it's hidden away and that like that's the era but it was I mean like, a lot of that stuff you it could was find. like this cast iron yeah you could kill yourself it was heavy it was it was, it was like it was the it was like black yeah iron heavy. yeah and you i mean god forbid you got your finger caught in the spoke of it going you know you yeah. could kill you you know but it's like stuff i'm sure you could find nowadays at thrift stores and secondhand shops but if you were trying to find like the craftsmanship and some of that stuff nowadays, you'd be paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for stuff like that because yeah. everything's so cheap. It's such an IKEA or, you know, you buy stuff on Amazon, kind of a, a mentality now. You can't really get any of that stuff unless you know where to go 
And you can either go to a thrift shop that'll have it, or you get a thrift shop that'll know what it has, and then it's jacked up anyway because it knows it's an antique. But um, getting back on task, yes, the whole era of the, the that, the cars, everything, the department store, always rang so true to me, and that's an element that I loved. Um, I had a, My dad had a BB gun growing up. It was never anything I was really into. I had guns around the house growing up because my father owned firearms. So it wasn't like I was into like gra- trying to grab the BB gun and go shoot things. So that wasn't something that excited me. A couple of my friends, when we were in middle school, uh, secretly bought a BB gun. They had their older brother, go- Martin had his older brother go buy his BB gun. He had like a handgun and then he wanted to go and shoot stuff. And me always still being the kind of person I am nowadays, I never wanted to go with him because I didn't want him to see him shoot a bird or a squirrel and stuff like that. I was like, you just got to shoot cans. Don't shoot anything living. So I never was a real person who was trying to get a BB gun to to to, to go shoot stuff. But at, in in this era of the story takes place, I can completely see, you know, they made BB guns for kids. This is this was an era where, you know, you and I always talk lament about growing up where we had gun aisles growing up. Yeah. You had cap guns and stuff like that. So guns were a part of everyday life. Toy guns, I mean. And, uh, you know, a generation or two before us, it wasn't uncommon that you'd get your son a, a BB gun. I mean, heck, my high school, in the basement of high, my high school, uh, there was an old firing range because back in the day, my high school had a, uh, you know, a, a gun team or a rifle team. You know, that was, it was like almost having a bowling alley. We had a rifle team, too. I mean, that was, or an archery too you know that was something because you know you know if you go back two generations of your family uh if you're from you know america for that long you'll see that that you know it was more rural so people did have a lot of access to hunting and guns and shooting so uh all that's very interesting to me um but as we go on now darren mcgavin in this movie yeah i want to talk about both Darren McGavin and Melinda Dillon, because I think they are absolutely wonderful in this. Well, see, now, Darren McGavin, I, I, I was trying to pin down my wife, who's English. This was she wasn't introduced to this movie until I showed it to her when she came to America. So um, I guess they had it in England, but it wasn't as a staple as it is here. She absolutely adores it and watches it every year when we watch it. And she kind of had the right way of being introduced to Darren McGavin because before I showed her a Christmas story, I had showed her Kolchak the Night Stalker. So I kind of envied her her seeing it in the chronological order that audiences of the day saw. So I was trying to figure out how I was first introduced to Darren McGavin. It most certainly had to be this movie, but I was trying to figure out, was it Dead Heat, Raw Deal, or I wasn't really a sports fan, but people he was in the natural yeah, and stuff like that's that. That's how I that's how I first remember him is in the from the natural. Yeah, and, so, and he's just, in my recollection, he's just he's disturbing in the natural. Yeah, I remember people talk about how kind of crazy you know he and so I was trying to figure out how I first knew Darren, and it must have been from this movie and shortly after this movie, seeing Dead Heat or Raw Deal at the same time because he's in those. But now. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm one of the biggest Darren McAvin fans. Uh, so much so that actually this might be a good idea to share this story. Our mutual friend Blake and I's Matt, the saxophonist Garrison, who is a jazz saxophonist, great, great uh, player who does his day job as he teaches, but at night he plays uh, jazz music and is in various bands and stuff. Um, he actually did write and score. We did a episode one year where I, for Christmas, did uh, Inside the Toy Box, where I talked to the old Podwitz guys about stuff from our toys. And 
it, we did a Batman intro that he scored and might have even played. So that was Matt playing that. Um, Matt Garrison told me a story that he was jamming with somebody at some place, and he said that Darren McGavin came up. I got to remember the story right. He was talking to a gentleman, and the gentleman's name was Darren McGavin. And he says, wow, you have the same name as Darren McGavin. And he said, no, okay. So <laughs> let me let me start this again. Our friend that Matt, reverse. Yeah. Our friend Matt is a saxophone player. I think the story is he was talking to a friend of his. His friend of his uh, was playing the space, and I forget what city it was in, and was talking to a guy named Darren McGavin. The guy named Darren, he goes, wow, you, you know, you have the same name as Darren McGavin. And the gentleman said, no, I used to room with Darren McGavin. And Darren McGavin liked my name and took my name, and that became his stage name. So Darren, he thought it was such a good name, he used it as a stage name. So I went on Wikipedia and looked it up, and Darren McGavin's real name is William Kyle Richardson. So it's very plausible that this is true, except I just don't know the age of the person relaying the story because Darren McGavin died in 2006 or seven, uh, and he would have just turned 100. I think he, he was born 1922. Um, so I don't know how old this gentleman would have been to have been rooming with Darren McGavin in the late 40s, early 50s for him to make the decision to be Darren yeah. McGavin when he started his acting career. The reason I bring this whole freaking long-winded story up is... Everyone knows how much of a fan I am of Darren McGavin. You know, I even worked out a kind of crazy Darren McGavin impression trying to do the radio play I did last year to try to do an homage to Darren McGavin. I don't want to talk any kind of blasphemy here, but I would only lay out the question, and I'm not giving a pro or con to it, saying, do does anybody agree, uh, out there agree with me that Darren McGavin is a little older for the role. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, like I just started watching. I finished, I don't know if we I finished watching the one season of The Magician. Yes, with what's his face? Uh um, with Bill Bixby. Yes. And I will just say, quick side note, there's an episode with William Shatner where in the last minute of the episode you see why William Shatner is such a great actor. Yeah, I had to watch the moment. I had to rewind it and watch it like three times because Shatner gives a delivery of a line in there. I'm not saying like a hokey Shatner delivery. He that elevates that episode because the episode's actually kind of cheesy. But in the final minutes minutes of that episode, Shatner he effing brings it, man. Like you watch, yeah. like this guy, this guy can act. So, finish The Magician. I always like to have an older show that I can visit when I'm eating dinner or whatever. I don't watch it every night. I watched Quincy was the one before that. Just watch Magician. I just started Streets of San Francisco. Oh, great. Yeah. A Quinn Martin production. <laughs> so, I'm like five, six episodes yeah. into Streets of San Francisco. Well, that, that, that pilot to Streets of San Francisco is crazy. Yeah. It's based on a book. The TV movie. Yeah. The occult with the end and all that. Cause that, yeah, I, yeah. I watched that and that thing was crazy. Robert Wagner. Yeah. Uh, but I'm five, six episodes in and now the show's starting to take off. But there's always like, 
you look at the actors in the show and you look at like they're talking about oh I had this I had it there's the one I just watched is this woman had to she gave her son up for adoption and the son's 5 years old and she's like I was 19 I was like this woman is 35 if she's a day yeah, yeah. she's not 25 she's yeah. at, she's at the at least 10 years older than she's playing yeah so I mean it's not unheard of but yes I agree Darren McGavin is a little too old for this part interesting thing about the Darren McGavin's casting in this part I was watching an interview with with uh, Gene Shepard from 1983 when yeah. this movie came out fresher when this movie was out and she and the woman asks oh like how hard was it to find Peter Billingsley like the casting process yeah he's like well He's like the hard part to find was the old man because he Ralph's character is pretty passive. It's him watching what's going on a lot of the time. So finding the old man was the tough part. He's like, and everybody wanted to, he's like Walter Matthau really wanted to play the old man, but we didn't want Walter Matthau. It would be a Walter Matthau movie if Walter Matthau played it. He's yeah, like, I've been weird. So he's like, I went to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> it just would have been, it would have turned, yeah, it would have turned into a Walter Matthau. And it would have been great, but it would have been a Walter Matthau part. Yeah. It would have been a Walter Matthau movie. He's like, so I went to Bob and I told him, you know, you got to think of the old man as a guy. He's from Chicago. You know, he follows the Chicago teams. He's a guy who was from Chicago and moved to Indianapolis or wherever it is, Indiana. For work. The suburbs almost. And he's a guy who has regret. Like he had this life in Chicago. He moved to Indiana. And probably the worst thing he ever did was get married and have kids. (laughs) This sounds like we're talking about Al Bundy. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and that's why like the puzzles and stuff. He's a dreamer. He's like Ralphie. He's a dreamer. Yeah. Um, He's like, he's Kolchak. Kolchak had this great life in Chicago and then he moved to Indiana, ended up having kids, and he misses his life in Chicago. So why don't we just get Kolchak? Like the old man is Kolchak. So why don't we just get Kolchak? So that's how they that's according to Gene Shepard, anyway. That's why they went to Darren McGavin. Now I, I've heard stories about Jack Nicholson, them wanting Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson being interested. Um they and then they said that. Uh, the rumor is Jack Nicholson was interested, but the price it would have doubled the budget. And then, or before Nicholson gave an answer, or they realized Nicholson was interested, they went with Darren McGavin. I love Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, I, I I have a lot of fondness for in a lot of different roles, and I'm not just talking about his A sides. I love his B side work, like Ironweed and stuff, like The Last Detail and stuff. To two Jakes, I just don't know how. Jack Nicholson of the era of 83, like around Terms of Endearment. I don't know how that would have played. I mean, we're talking about just like a couple of years after The Shining. Yeah. So, I mean, it might have been cool. I just don't want him to be a nut. He might have played it differently. I mean, like, again, him in Ironweed, which is 87, 88, phenomenal. So if he brought something to it aside from crazy Nicholson, which he might have, because he wasn't uh, yet like, I'm not going to say he's a... Um, uh, a, a parody of himself like a De Niro or Pacino are nowadays. Yeah. So it might have been good, but I just can't envision a guy like Nicholson being in the role because it would have taken the movie certainly to a different level as soon as it's come out. 
And I don't know what how that would affected the longevity of it now, if it would have been more popular more quickly and if it would have been as revered or what. But casting McGavin in it, I think, is a stroke of brilliance. The reason I just started the conversation as I did on this is just that I wonder if it would have been better suited for him to have been of the age of Kolchak, you know, because he's, he's in his 50s when he's doing Kolchak. Yeah. Uh, or even when he's doing Riverboat, which is the late 50s, 1950s, you know, that means he's in his middle to 30s when he's doing Riverboat or he's doing, if he did Mike Hammer, uh, this the Mickey Spillane yeah. series he did in the 50s, that would have been cool seeing Darren in his prime. Not to be said, though, that in the if you want to explain away his age, he could have just later in life, you know, if I have a child tomorrow, I'm going to be Darren McGavin's age when the kid hits the 10, 11 years old. Yeah. So it's very plausible. Yeah, you know, he married later in life. Or, you know, he, I don't know what the... I didn't do the research on what the age difference is between him and Dylan. Yeah. Uh, you know, so maybe he just got an, a younger woman and, you know, but... Yeah, but I also think we just got away with casting older yeah. people back then. And it's also like... Well, yeah, and then going to what you said, too, it's, I think we were a lot more forgivable back then because now, uh, and I don't know if it's just... Be- me saying us being more forgivable means that we were ignorant and people that were older back then realized. But now certainly when I or my wife, we watch something and someone, you know, we're watching a show that someone's supposed to be in high school and they're clearly in their thirties. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know that's, I mean? that's, that was everything back then. Yeah. You so know? I don't know if that was just the, you know, that, that was the conceit that people didn't bother them or if it was just more blatant because you're older or people just didn't realize. Or if you need to explain it away, if you really need to believe it like it's night it's the 40s i mean yeah people lived hard <laughs> yeah it's true yeah for all we know darren could only be 35 in that movie there was a there's no. an episode of uh quincy which is yeah. like 19 the episode is probably 80 81 because yeah. it starts in the late 70s like season six season seven and uh you've seen uh i take it you've seen willy wonk on the chocolate factory <laughs> The We're talking about the Gene Wilder one? <laughs> yeah, the Gene yes, Wilder Yes, yes, yes. We covered it on this podcast. And, how, and if you had to guess how old Violet Beauregard's dad, Sam Beauregard here, Beauregard Motors or whatever, like how old do you think that guy was? In Willy Wonka? Yeah. I would say, I would say he's in his 50s, but I bet you so you're going to tell flash, me he's not. <laughs> flash, but I'm just saying flash forward. 1980, 81. So a good 10 years. You know. A decade after. May, maybe eight years. But almost. Push it. If it's not a full decade, it's pushing it. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh, he gets in a car accident in Quincy. The orderly or with a doctor's like, we have a ma- white male, 40. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Sam Beauregard? 40 years old. Which means he's 30 years old when he's doing, um, in 1971 when he's. So, I mean, maybe he was, maybe, maybe he was, but, uh, you know, Commodore Decker from Star Trek <laughs> doomsday machine, the guy who yeah. goes crazy and wants to fly the enterprise into the heart of yeah, the, yeah. of the, of the space bugle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that guy, I don't know how old that guy is, but fla- flash forward. This is definitely you know, this is five years later, episode of uh, three years, four years later, episode of uh, Streets of San Francisco. They're saying he's 40. 
You know, this guy's full white hair. Yeah. You know, this guy's... I a, forget, what's his name? Because he's very famous. I always get him mixed up with um, Kevin McCarthy from yeah, uh, Invasion very, of the Body very Snatchers. Similar but look. it's not... He's the poor man's Kevin McCarthy, and I see him in everything. And he's the one who actually reprised that role. Remember what the fan made Star Trek yeah. series? Where they, that was very like good. Him they, sitting like this lazy boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they had like the shuttle in his garage because the, the, the continuing of that episode was like it went through a wormhole. Yeah. There was, landed in this, is a, this is in the weeds, people. <laughs> yeah, really there was, was a fan made like continuation of star trek that was made uh 20 years ago now that they shot in the odds up in upstate new york and they rebuilt the bridge and all that stuff and this is not anything to do with the ticonderoga exhibit that they have nowadays up there yeah but somebody had shot and built in a barn a real life star trek and, and they were like, doing and george takei did an episode and i think walter Walt koenig, koenig think, did yeah and, and there's this know. episode where it's a continuation of it's the doomsday like, it's in the future it's in today present day now the doomsday and they <clears throat> and they got this guy and they went over and just like filmed a video broadcast of him like leaving a videotape and they just seriously went to the guy's house and he's sitting in his lazy boy reading this thing and the woman who plays It's a great Ma- performance. Yeah. And the woman that no. plays Marlena from the Mirror Mirror episode plays his wife, his widow in that episode. Anyway, that's really off the beat track. My <laughs> my, my point is only there the People looked older back then as well. So William Wyndham is his name. What, what is it? Let's Wyndham? give him some William Wyndham. William Wyndham. He's uh, yeah, one of those God guys. God bless him because you'll you'll if you see him, you know him and everything. Because like I said, he looks like a poor man's Kevin McCarthy. If people even know who Kevin McCarthy is, um, and I don't mean the the new Speaker of the House or whoever that was. William yeah. Wyndham. He's coming up as a. Yeah, William Wyndham. Great. Yeah. And he's oh but he was looks like a guy um whose hair dye went gray like a Steve Martin. It yeah. prematurely went died a little early. But anyway. My um, point is anyway, only that Darren McGill yeah. that the old man he could yeah. have been like forty. <laughs> <laughs> and just lived a hard life. And lived a hard um, life of night. I mean, they were coming out of the they're coming out of the depression. Sure. I think that's something we gotta think about in terms of the terms of the movie. Like this is like just post the the Great Depression, the yeah, and, and, and you know, and he's li- and, and he's living and he's working in. A, I don't think it ever says what he does. Yeah, I don't know if he has a if he has a desk job or he's working in a factory or he's doing some sort of manual labor to a certain extent. Um, you know, she's definitely a homemaker. His mom, uh, and um, let me do a one sidebar before we finish with Darren McGavin because we're talking about great performances. Uh, you went back and watched some stuff of Quincy. Um, there's a show called Mannix, which people might have heard of, and um, uh, soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin, amazing sound work. People might know Mannix from the recent Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, at the beginning of the movie when Brad Pitt goes home and cooks himself some macaroni and cheese for, for dinner and sits with his dog. He's watching Mannix at the beginning, and he's eating, and it was a very heavy stuntman show, a lot of stunts. There's an episode of Manix season. Everyone write this down. Season four, episode one. It's called a ticket to the eclipse. And we find out the premise of the show is Manix is a private detective and he private detectives. So there's a, the premise of the episode is that, uh, Manix's old, you know, army company in Korea is getting killed one at a time. And it's almost like Lethal Weapon. You know, it's like, why is his old unit getting killed? We got to try to find out. Come to find out, the head of the unit is Darren McGavin. 
Darren McGavin is going around killing each one of the people from the unit because he's gone crazy. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and, well, you learn it like in the first scene because right. Darren McGavin. So this episode is from 1970, which is a year before Di- uh, Dirty Harry comes out. And Lalo Schifrin did the music for Dirty Harry. So a lot of the, uh, the music cues in this sound like proto dirty harry it sounds like he was like toying with the idea of like oh i'll use this in this movie so a lot of like the stark uh cues of with the bad guy in dirty harry and some of the 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 real the 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 frantic or tension music is all done in this and darren mcgavin in this you know he's 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 young and he's well he's 50 years old but he's he's strapping he's a kung fu expert so (laughs) so manix goes (laughs) to see him at his um at his job that is he's instructing a class and he starts having a conversation with darren mcgavin and darren mcgavin's in his gi he's just finishing the class with a bunch of young adults of how to like stop a rapist or whatever and he's like going ha ha and you could completely tell you know darren mcgavin has not taken a day of karate in his life he might have but not for this back you know and then he starts having this conversation with Mannix about um you know and then it, it's all the sub the 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 subtext of like are you the one that's doing this or are you the one you know and Darren McGavin very quickly is, is insinuating yeah I'm the one who's doing all this because I forget why you know you left me in the jungle or whatever so as they're having this conversation next to the mat there is parallel bars <laughs> and Darren McGavin gets on the parallel bars <laughs> as he's talking to Mannix and you cut to this long shot, and there's this guy who just looks nothing like, like Darren McGavin. Starts doing these flips and all these crazy things on the parallel bars, jumps up, does all this stuff. His legs are flying around, do, jumps off the parallel bars, does like a three-foot jump in the air. And then it cuts to a close-up, and Darren McGavin just like – it just looks like he just jumped like two feet in the air, comes down on the mat, and goes, ha! And it's just <laughs> – the funniest thing where it's like these long shots look nothing like Darren McGavin. Well, they do, but it just looks like a guy with a mustache. And it's Darren McGavin as he's talking. And, it, and it, so it's just brilliant use of editing back in the old days that people, the suspension disbelief, people would believe this is Darren McGavin yeah. doing, going through all this. Side so, Completely worth watching. Yeah. Also, I would just note a great young Darren McGavin performance, and he's, he's, re- he's beautiful in it. Uh, both, uh, I mean, he's creepy as the character, but he's very handsome. Is um, he's kind of the antagonist in the Man with the Golden Arm? Yeah, Sinatra. he's the one who sells uh, Sinatra the the drugs. And he's, he's great, the drug dealer. But one thing I will say about the part of the old man, yes, yeah. I think. So let's yeah segue back into the and I think part. the reason why Darren McGavin is so great in this part is because there's there's a warmth to him. Yeah. Because I think when we think about a, a depiction of a father. 50s 60s even six even 60s with kevin arnold in wonder years like the dad there's a warmth to the dad but he's stern yeah and i think you you think of the the way a a dad is depicted especially in the 40s as being like a a guy that doesn't say i love you he's maybe a disciplinarian he's maybe a little bit of an absentee with a with a with a wife who's the i don't know but there. He's not. He's not or a drinker. Movie. You know, yeah. could be tossing him back. You know, like he maybe comes home, has his cocktail that his wife makes him, sits and yeah. drink, smokes his pipe, and like says hi to the kids, but doesn't. Like everything or comes home drunk. Everything after a happy that hour. everything that you imagine about like the, a father figure in the context of popular culture or whatever of the of that era is someone who's 
aloof, not really part. He He's the breadwinner and that's his job. And, but I think, yeah, we don't, I don't think we ever see the old man tell Ralphie he loves him, but there's a, there's a warmth. He's not the disciplinarian. You kind of see hints of that. Like he's a dreamer and he recognizes the dreamer in Ralphie. He's the one person that Ralphie doesn't ask for the, for the, for the BB gun, but he's the one that gets him the BB gun. I just think it's a, it's a really beautiful depiction of a father that we don't get in stories about that era very often. And I think McGavin does a really subtle, but great job of depicting the, the it's all in that scene where they're sitting on the couch after he's opened all the presents. He's like, did you get everything you want? He's like, well, almost, he's like, almost, yeah, well, that's life. You know, that's, it's such a beautiful scene. <laughs> And he's yeah. going, wait, what's that behind the desk? And yeah. you see that, like, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's so subtle that you don't even probably think about it on a, on a watch. But when you think about the relationship of a dad and a son, it's so everything we've seen to this point is the dad, like you said, the dad is battling the dogs. The dad's ba- has a, he fights with the furnace. Um, This relationship between this, the Wait, man versus nature, man versus technology. Yeah, but you like, know. and McG- Mc- Darren McGavin has a charm and a warmth that uh, may perhaps isn't inherently there in someone like Jack Nicholson. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you like when you look at Darren McGavin, you like Darren McGavin. You yeah. know, he's going to give him a big hug and he's just got one him. of those faces. And so like watching it now as an adult, I don't have children, but, uh, I do connect with that relationship and that character in a way now that I certainly didn't when I was a kid and certainly didn't as a teenager on the flip side, like Melinda Dillon's great, you know, Melinda Dillon, notorious nude scene in slap shot for, yeah. any, for anybody, but she plays the mom in Harry to Henderson's, which you know is a movie that I, is she in close encounters as well? She might also be the mom in close encounters. You're I right. think that's what got her the job on this. I don't know if Slapshot did, but, the, but I think they might've saw close encounters. Um, before we bookend Darren, um, yeah, th- his versatility of being able to be a complete psycho a la Max Katie, in that episode of Manex going to this where he's just this warm father figure. And um, there is a, uh, I've seen a, a little um, speculation online that at the beginning of this movie, when Ralphie puts the ad in the look magazine and leaves it, he might've left it on his dad's bed. And that could have been how the dad saw open the look magazine to that art and said, Oh, red rider BB gun. Maybe that's what my kid wants, but I'm certain the dad must have been aware because, you, like you said, he, he asked the mom. The teacher knows. He had the writing assignment. I mean, dad might be aloof enough not to. I don't know if Ralph would have left it on his dad. I don't think Ralph. No, but I think he might have. <laughs> but I, 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 I well, that yeah. But I think I, I, I forget how it was worded. But that's might how by the dad saw it. He opened the magazine and got the idea that way. That it was the Look magazine that might have give the, the the dad the idea. Um, I had a similar instance when I was little. It wasn't a Red Rider BB gun, but I remember being very little when I was about six years old. Christmas was over that morning, 
And then I thought all the presents were opened. And then my dad's like, what's that over there? There's something else. And I, I looked and he's like, Santa left something else for you. And it was under the couch. And I took it out and I was like, what's this? And I opened it up. And you know what it was? It was a uh, Play-Doh fire engine. One of those ones where you can, you know, you put the, you put the Play-Doh in it and you, you pull the ladder and then it comes out of string cheese or yeah. spaghetti or you put the different... Not anything like a BB gun, but the idea of being able to have a present later in the day when you thought all your presents were open, yeah, and there's still one hidden away is just a marvelous, marvelous, um, brilliant bit, bit of parenting there. So, but I think Darren hits all the right moves, and uh, all his stuff, his ad libbing of the swears down in the basement, him battling the car, having to come in and like an every morning thing he's got to get the hot water to like defrost the car and all these things with the bumpers and dogs and you know bumpers friends like all his little antics and you know then timing himself about getting the the spare on or having to go haggle with the tree guy about how much it's going to be a lot of this stuff that an actor of lesser caliber might not have been able to invent all these little uh moments and nuances and flourishes that i think darren is just really hits him out of the park even with the lamp and everything like that and you feel like we said earlier like i don't i think it's more of him having the achievement of the lamp than it being the erotic lamp it is it's just ah shit this is what it happened to be and he didn't know what it was going to be either he thought it could have been a d to a bowling alley when he opens opens up the crate he's like anything could be in there yeah he doesn't know he jumps in and he's pulling it out you know and it's like and then he gets and he's like ah so i think it's unfortunate for him as well that he has this conflict but he doesn't he will never give up because it's it's his it's the first thing he's been awarded prize yeah so once when mom breaks, you know, he goes outside and we have the cameo of, of Bob Clark's outside as the neighbor that's like, oh, what is that? It's a lamp. What? How did you, you want it? He won a lamp. That, that's Bob Clark, the director. It's a major prize. He won a major yeah, prize. Yeah, he won a major prize. And the cars are slowing down. And it's so embarrassing for, for Melinda Dillon that later on in the movie when she breaks it, you feel the, you know, you, he's like, you use all the glue. And then he's like, not a finger. And he goes out and gets it. And then him trying to glue it back and the fish nets are all broken. You think he has it and he just crumples and he, he's like, and he holds it and he doesn't say anything. And he, it's just, it's such brilliant acting by Darren McGavin. And he go, you know, they say he went and taps were played in the back at night when he went and buried it in the backyard. It's just, it's sad. But yeah, yeah. God bless Darren McGavin. We love him. Sorry, yeah. Melinda Dillon. Melinda Dillon. Uh, I think she's also. I think she's kind of. Uh, I no, she's she, brilliant in this. Yeah, I think she's kind of like the uh, comes in under the radar, but I think she's great. I mean, I think the very telling, you know, all this stuff with them. I, I could totally relate to a kind of a, a kind of old overbearing mother when she's putting the brother in the in the suit and the, the, yeah. the scarf and everything. But there's a brilliant moment that's very subtle. Which is when Ralphie beats up the, he's going ape shit on the uh, on the on the uh, bully, and his little brother goes Vargas Fargus, and his little brother goes and gets the mom, and the mom comes and she comes up and everybody thinks that the mom's going to be angry at him, but she comes and she she never even once looks at Fargus, her eyes are on Ralphie the entire time, and she's like, it's okay, it's okay, and. She takes it's a very loving moment for that character. And then she takes him home and like puts the water on his face, like calm down. <laughs> like, yeah. Like she 
it's just it's a very like like she's like I said she doesn't she's not angry at him. She comes to his aid and she, she rat him out and she's to, to yeah to the dad. She and her eyes are fixated on him from the minute she walks into that shot. She never once looks at the guy that she's that he's beating. Nowadays it would be like totally different scenario, but in that moment she's it, she's coming to the aid of her son like mama bear you know Oof. goes into action uh it's a great Nowadays moment you'd have she's... the mother beat up the kid you know <laughs> but she's gr- she's great uh well she's very i think she's very attractive so like she's the i think she's very beautiful as the mother and she she has all these um characteristic that like uh, adorn her um she has this love this warmth um She's cute. She she has the mother sensibility. It's all this stuff you want in an actress and a particular mother character like this to, to be able to embody, you know, to get the kids to get their way. You know, yeah. she realizes that dad's getting pissed off at the dinner table. She doesn't want another fight to happen. So how does she get the, you know, the little ra- uh, um, Randy to eat, you know, do the pig thing? And, you know, it's like all these little ways she gets around getting things done or having them, you know, putting him in the suit, how much she loves these two kids or she's at home doing things or cooking and how smart she is, you know, by she knows Victor is like the triggers brother's horse's name and, you know, how she changes the conversation when she says about the the sports about, oh, Ralphie got into a fight. And then she's like, no, well, how are the bears doing? And he's yeah. like, they might be called the chipmunk. You know, it's like all that averting. You know, it's all very done, very purposefully. But yeah, she, she, it's a great, it's a well, beautifully written character and yeah. and beautifully played by Belinda Dillon. One of her, you know, the moment, her moments at the end of the movie, Bob Clark had a thing where he was very, he would often tell the kids, like, just be, like, be natural, like, you know, he was very going for like a very natural thing. And part of his direction would be to have the the, the first time a, the actors would see something be while they were rolling. So like the first time Ralphie sees the, the character, Peter Billingsley sees the, the, the actor who plays Ralphie sees the, uh, the lamp is in that shot, you know? So we see that uh, Melinda Dillon at the end of, towards the end of the movie, when they go to the Chinese restaurant, she's hysterical. She can't, she's laughing at the singers. She's laughing at the duck. She gets startled when she, because all that was, she, you know, they didn't rehearse any of that. She was in that moment. And all those reactions in the, in the Chinese restaurant are Melinda Dillon's reactions to the things that's going on. She's laughing at those actors playing Chinese waiters, singing the carols, She's laughing at. She's startled by the duck. She's genuinely startled when he just chops the duck's head off because he she wasn't expecting that. And they play that whole scene, you know, with this long lens from across the street. Yeah, you're not intruding. It's almost like you're the spectator going by on Christmas. And they play. What is it? I think it's one take too. It might Might just be be a. It might just be a, uh, you know, a, a zoom in. But yeah, it's a it's a great moment. Kind of a great finale for the movie it's a it's a great moment for the dad who's been looking forward to this turkey the entire you know day he's a, it's a, he's known 
you know, nationwide for being a, 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 a turkey lover. But he's a guy who, you know, makes the best of a bad situation. And when it's all said and done, he's like, okay, get dressed. We're going out. Yeah, he diverts a disaster. He knows mother's crushed because she's been working on this food. He's, you know, kid, the, the kitchen is a disaster. He could flip out and start screaming and yelling and get mad at the family or go across and do something bad to the dogs or whatever or yell at the bumpers and the neighbors. But he's like, you know what? Put on your coats and we are going out. He knows what's the only place that's going to be open on Christmas. He goes yeah. to the Chinese restaurant. I go and they have a Chinese turkey. Yeah. <laughs> it, is the, like, it is the greatest thing in the world. Like, And it's like, you know, Dag, the and they can't say it right. And then the other guy's trying to explain it to him. And that's become a classic on its own. But, uh, you know, as we, we should probably wrap it up. But, uh, you know, I think it's worth noting that the kids are great in this movie, too. Like, the ca- yeah. kids can easily be annoying. And, and the casting of the wrong kid or an annoying kid in a movie can be the death nail of uh of a of a tv show or especially a movie and uh all the all the kids all the friends peter billingsley uh well flick who turns into ends up being in the toy as well played by squat schwartz uh and then schwartz who's played by rd rob um it's all great natural performances you buy them as friends and i think that's part of they said um, that was part of Bob Clark. He wanted them to hang out. They they basically were on the shooting of this movie. They lived in a hotel, and so they hung out together. They played video games at the hotel together. Um, they wanted them to be kids. He left them rooms to be to be kids, even though uh, Scott Schwartz and R.D. Rob weren't in the um weren't in the department store scene. The hotel was connected to the department store, so he brought them over so that they could play on the, they could play on the slide. You know, yeah. so he it's important for them for the kids to be kids, but they also kind of left. He kind of separated them from uh, Zach Ward, who played Scott Fargus. Like he didn't want them to interact with the bully because he didn't. Which want is them, a great idea. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want them to be friends with the the, the actor that played the bully because he, he wanted them to be upset or kind yeah, of like genuinely uncomfortable and, and kind of scared. Uh, and again, he's brilliant casting too. Like you look at that kid, and he's scary looking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he was older looking, and he's and then the, his his minion, the kid next to him with the giving him that little hat and the leather jacket. I mean, that's totally out of a bruiser, out of like the Bowery Boys or you know the Dead End Kids kind of yeah. a look of those of a, um, with the fingerless gloves and everything. And that whole sequence. The department store sequence, I think, is just so brilliant. I mean, I remember when I was little going to see Santa at a Macy's at the Chapel Square Mall in New Haven and getting on his lap and asking him for Transformers. Can I have Starscream? And, you know, I had no fucking clue probably what I'm talking about. You know, but like the the whole the whole idea of getting in the line and then you get Gene Shepard, who's a cameo there, where he's like, this isn't the end. This isn't the beginning of the line. The line ends here. It begins that way. And you have to get all the way down. And then the annoying kid who's like, I like the scarecrow. Like, I yeah. love that kid. I like the, t- I like the way that I vibe. Um, and that kind of dates the movie because people are always trying to say, like, when does this movie take place? Because the Bing Crosby movie, Santa's coming into town with, I think, the San Andrew sisters, or that's Jingle Bells that, that they're playing Christmas morning. Something comes out in 43, but... Uh, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz is 1939, so this would be the summer of 1940. Or, I'm sorry, the, the Christmas of 1940, and the Dakota ring that he's talking about that he gets from Ovaltine, which is another harrowing thing, too, because I remember it being such suspense of oh, what yeah. he's going to in the bathroom, and then it's like, oh, it's just a crummy commercial of the Over- Ovaltine. That was the 1940 edition of the Dakota you'd get, so um, 
all that stuff is genius and him waiting in line to go see Santa at an old fashioned department store that we grew up going to those things like those Macy's or those, um, uh, whatever you call those, those ones back then, the, uh, Woolworths or whatever and seeing Santa. And I always, even when I was little thinking of like how mean the elves were, like, come on, it's going to close and Santa being really <laughs> well, freaky. I, I think for a and lot they do of, it all on purpose, you know, I think a lot of, for a lot of kids, the whole Santa experience is kind of traumatic. I know like all the earliest photos of me up until a certain age, certainly not by Ralphie's age, but maybe by the little brother's age, like every photo of me with Santa up to a certain age is like, I'm crying. Yeah. You know, like it was scary. You don't know who this kid, like, yeah, he's Santa, but he's, you know, so I think it captures the potential traumatic, traumatic. I think they do that. Right. They, that's why they shoot it. They they shoot a POV of it. They shoot it with like a fisheye lens. Yeah. They shoot it all where you know you coming up and they they keep the shot in its entirety of you get being physically turned around <laughs> on his lap and sat. You know, so it's like you get the whole panoramic three, yeah. three, three. I mean, you even see, you know, it goes too quickly, but you could see the lights in frame, the big spotlights of when he, when they and then they sit him down and he's like, "What would you like for?" You know, and he, the guy looks like he's had a bunch to drink and you yeah. hear his asides like if he if he mr thinks i'm staying one past nine o'clock he's got another thing coming <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh, you know it's it's very much you're getting the adult versions a lot of this stuff too which is i think amazing so that whole sequence is and then even the slide i think it's so cool that they had a slide like that he gets down and then when darren mcgavin comes up did he ask you if you were good or not he's like no he's like oh don't worry he knows you <laughs> know it's like you know the guy of course the guy didn't ask him anything you know like that yeah um, yeah, well, that's another great moment for Darren McGavin. Like, there's just yeah. these like little moments that show his connection to the boys. Yeah. Um, Can we go? And he's like, "Shut up, Ralph." <laughs> it's, it's like he's he's like a dad, you know. It's like it's so it's he's so much it's so much like a father, you know. It's so funny, you know. Or the scene when he with the uh, when he swears, swears he says fudge, and then you know he's so shocked he tells the mom, and the mom screams. Melinda Dillon screams like he like you know the, like his brother his yeah. son had shot a kid. And she goes home in the whole phone conversation, you know, yeah. she calls up flick and then you hear him like almost being beat to death, you know, <laughs> and the soap, when I was very little, very, I don't know how old, I must've been like two or three. I remember my mom giving me a couple times soap as maybe if I was swearing, she'd give me soap in the mouth. It didn't last very long because I don't remember it happening m- much past being four or five or six, but it was disgusting getting soap in your mouth. That, that said, it wasn't that red soap. I don't know what the hell that is. It was like a bar of soap, and it was terrible, yeah. terrible getting soap in your mouth. Anyway, we could talk about this movie for another two hours. Yeah. Now, have you seen this? I don't remember ever seeing the sequel, the one that came out in 2002 or so. No, I didn't see I didn't it. see that. I one. also didn't even know about my Christmas, my summer story. Yeah, I heard about it researching over the years, but I've this. never seen those. So in the 90s, uh, Bob Clark and uh, Gene Shepard teamed up again yeah. and did another story where uh, about Ralphie, and it's about the summer. I think it's maybe about the following summer or something. I mean, it's played – Ralph's played by a young Kieran Culkin maybe, so he's still young in yeah. it. It's not his teenage years, which I think is – the sequel that you're talking about is like five years later. So I th- with what's his name in it um, from wonder years and home alone. Yeah. And Daniel Judd. Stern. Yeah. Daniel Stern plays the old man in that. And in, and in my summer story, uh, Charles Grodin plays the old man. And That's interesting. Mary Steenburgen plays the mom. 
and it's narrated by Gene Shepard. Uh, I've heard word that they at some point had a falling out, Bob and Gene. Um, well, they had problems on set, I heard, because you know, even though Bob was the director, Gene would go tell the actors how to play the scene, and then Clark, as close as they were with collaborators, he didn't like that. He's like, you can't be you know, giving them. He's like, leave you know, my actors alone. Yeah. Uh, and then prior to even doing this 83 movie, there was PBS specials, and they had, in 1976 and in 78, PBS had the Phantom of the Open Heath, Hearth, uh, part of an anthology called Visions, and then in 82, which is the year before this, they had The Great American, Fourth of July, and Other Disasters, which I think you referenced, and that was from an anthology series called American Playhouse. And in both those versions, in 1976 and 82, James uh, Broderick plays the old man, and in the 82 movie, a young Matt Dillon plays Ralphie. Interesting. So that would be cool to see, and those are previous to the 83 Christmas story we're talking about now. So, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff has been in the, 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 the zeitgeist for quite a while. I hadn't seen the sequels like you talked about or the prequels that we've talked about, and then yeah. I did see most recently the last year's one. Yeah. You know, which we think we both talked about when we saw it. Yeah. Because we kind of both enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it, and I, rem- I remember thinking it ended, I felt like it ended strong because it was, yeah. the ending is more about the old man. But oh, be- and I was very worried because I was like, coming to it, I was going to be pissed. I was going to be like, well, how the hell are they going to do this movie with the elephant in the room of, are they going to recast Darren McGavin or how are they going to do that? So I think they handled it very well in the first five minutes. Darren McGavin's characters just died. It takes place in the 1970s. And the whole impetus is going there and having to deal with all that. So I thought that was great. You're just you're throwing the first thing out there with you, getting yeah. it over with. And it's just a shame Melinda Dillon wasn't in it. Yeah. Um, but she ended she up didn't... she ended up dying shortly after that. So she must well, have been she ill. Had, yeah, that that's what I think it was because she had retired from acting and they tried to get her to come back to do this and she didn't want to. So I don't know if it was a situation of she didn't want to because she once she'd retired and maybe she didn't think she could do it or she didn't look the best, or two if she was sick. Because, like you said, within like two or three months of this getting a theatrical release or coming out on HBO Max, she passed away. Yeah. Which is very sad. So, but I did like, they did dedicate the movie to Darren McGavin, which was nice. Did they? Because I remember know. thinking that they didn't. <laughs> I, I I saw that they there's a dedication, it says. Because I remember thinking, there. like, how could they not dedicate it to Bob Clark? Yeah, well, maybe that's, they should have dedicated it to both of them. Yeah. But I, I think they did, they dedicated, they, 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 they dedicated it to, to, to Darren McGavin. And we never know what Darren McGavin's name is, but astute people look at the Western Union Telegram and in the shooting script, and they say his first name is Frank. So the old man's name is Frank Parker. Yeah. Very interesting. I heard that, um, and this is completely like hearsay or whatever that, when all Injection. was said and done, going forward, Bob Clark owned the Parkers and Ralphie up to a certain age, mm. and then Gene Shepard owned like the teenage years. Well, that's interesting. Which might Which have been why, I don't know, They maybe they didn't need Bob Clark to do the sequel because he didn't own Ralphie at that age. He owned Ralphie as like a kid. And Gene Shepard owned Ralphie as a as a teenager to adulthood. But would have Bob Clark been even interested, I wonder? I don't know. You know, at that point in his career, what he's doing or, you know, because, again. He probably, was, was, he might have passed away by the time they made that, 
that's well, the other one. Yeah, I know one of them's two thousand two or two thousand seven. I don't remember when the other ones hit, or if he'd be interested in it because it, it would be a straight to video sequel. And you know, Darren <laughs> McGavin was pretty old at that time. You know, for uh, him to be able to um, to participate, and um, I don't again because it's I don't remember how successful this was. I mean, they say it was a financial hit, but. When I was growing up, this was just something that was on all the time. Like Willy yeah, Wonka and the I, Chocolate Factory to me was on at Thanksgiving, and then this would be on at Christmas time along with I all think the other it was, Christmas stuff. It was, I think it was relatively well-reviewed. Yeah. And it made a profit. Yeah. I think it was a bit of a sleeper hit. I don't think anybody expected it to, to do well, but it did better than people expected it to. And, but it's one of those movies that grew over time, like- a wonderful life, you know. Yeah, you know it's a it's a wonderful life, which was like not a Christmas movie when it came out, and it was through television airings and everything that became one domain. of the most beloved yeah. <laughs> movies of all time. This was one of those scenarios, but it kind of came out. I mean, you think about nineteen eighty three. I mean, we're coming out, you know, past the the year of eighty two movies, and then the. Sandwiched between the year of eighty two and eighty four, which are such big eighties movies, and then it's this weird nostalgic movie for the forties. Like it probably slipped in under the radar, but I think it did relatively well. But it was one of those movies who grew an audience over decades of television and and home yeah, releases. by just getting it the crap played out of it. That certainly helped it. I, I think if it wasn't, you know, kind of just. Um, you know, slapped on TV all the darn time. It maybe it maybe wouldn't have the the impact it has now because I see like stuff like Elf is now coming to replace it. Elf to me feels like it came out like last year and it's already twenty years ago and they're already talking about remaking it. Yeah, you know. Um, and this movie had a what they did a uh, two thousand twelve. They did like a musical of it on Broadway, and then that even translated to them doing like a live musical version, which I missed when it came on Fox. I think Fox aired it. Yeah. You know, and I thought so. The one from last year I thought was pretty good. The one last year, as in the sequel that came out uh, of them growing up with Peter Billingsley and everyone who could have really reprised their characters of all the characters, Randy and Flick and Vargas is coming back as the as the he's, he's the cop now of the town. And I thought it was all. It's just a shame Melinda Dillon didn't participate and she passed away. And uh, and I remember if I was watching the credits correctly, they they shot it like in like. Prague or someplace crazy because yeah like, they shoot they, a lot of stuff <laughs> you know like they set the town up like the street in the town and they you know and because it was cold or whatever they shot it over there but I um, remember enjoying it for what it was and um so I don't know um you know Red Rider BB guns that's awesome and and you know now it makes me want a left-handed Red Rider because I'm left-handed like Ralphie so I need to get one with a compass on the side and all the, that stuff. Uh, also, like you know, it's largely largely thought that this movie was shot in Cleveland and, and some of it was, but it was also a lot of it was shot in Canada too. In Ontario, Ontario, with the um, with the streetcars and trolley cars, yeah. So, um, again, this is probably a movie that we could dissect even more. But uh, it's it getting... takes place in Indiana, yeah. And what else is there? Anything else to, to um, that we're skipping? Flagpole scene was always classic when I was little. Uh, you know, and then just the, the narration, you know, all his stuff, you know, it, uh, he always had such a great narrating voice, Gene Shepard. So it yeah. was, it was, it so was the narration so cool. is interesting because it's also, it's looking back, it's, it's looking back, telling a story, but at the same time in the scenes, it's sometimes within the scene. Like it's the voiceover takes like two different 
tenses, past tense yeah. and present tense. It's what's happening in the moment or years later, I would remember, you know, and then it's different too from Daniel Stern doing the Wonder Years because to me, that was somebody like our age doing the Wonder Years or like it was an internal monologue where I wouldn't really look at it identifying age where contrasting to Gene Shepard, when I hear his warm fuzzy voice of a Christmas story, it to me reminds me of like a grandfather yeah, or an older man thinking of the younger years. And, you know, so every time I listened to it, that it, it, I got warm and fuzzy feelings of that era because I felt like it was his, his voice was so soothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was kind of like, you know, and it was like him in the 1980s thinking about his life in the forties growing up. If that makes sense. So, uh, definitely I would, you know, if anybody, I know, Probably everybody downloading this has seen this movie, so I don't think we need to go tell people to go see this. But I th- certainly think people should go seek out some of other Bob Clark's um, um, discography or filmography. Certainly, like Black Christmas or Murder by Decree, uh, if people haven't seen that, uh, and certainly Darren McGavin. <laughs> since we're here, <laughs> got to go see any Darren McGavin and you know Melinda Dillon and uh, Gene Shepard. Check out. I wonder if you can find those PBS other things. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. You know, those would be fun. Like to I said, at the very least, on. you can listen to some of his old radio broadcasts, even telling these stories. Yeah, that'd be cool. On YouTube. Yeah. And he ended up passing away, I think it was in 2002 or so, or I forget what year they say he passed away. Um, poor son of a gun. Uh, but yeah, you have anything else? Uh, 1999. He died in 1921 to 1999. Oh, nice life. Um you have anything else to say about the movie or anything? I don't think so. It's cool if you go to if you go to Cleveland, somebody's bought the house and has redone the house. So the house looks like it did for when they shot it with the painting and stuff. And then even though the interiors were shot on sound stages, he the per they spent the money and redid the inside of the house to look like the interior of the house. And then they bought the house across the street, and that's the gift shop and museum or something. But I don't know, because when I was in Cleveland, it had some pretty dodgy neighborhoods. Yeah. So I don't know what the neighborhood is. If it's like downtown New Haven, that might be, let's hopefully, they're keeping it in a bubble, so to speak, because you don't want people like ODing on fentanyl right next door to the Christmas tree store at your house, you know. But anyway, so uh, any recommendations, thoughts, comments, concerns there, Dr. Blake? Uh, just uh, if you haven't seen it in a while. I recommend giving it a watch again from the start. I think you, you know, if you're anything like me, I hadn't seen it in its entirety in decades. Um, and uh, now as an adult who spends a lot of his time being nostalgic for my child. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie kind of hit me in a way that uh, in a nice sweet spot that it hadn't in previous years. That's why you put your hand on my thigh. I was like, oh, play. That's nice. Yeah. That and other reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always enjoyed this movie. And, um, you know, like I said, full disclosure, I tried to really put it down for a couple of years because I got kind of annoyed at the popularity of it because it was everywhere. You couldn't turn on the TV at Christmas time without seeing it. Then, as well as back when you used to still channel surf, you know, I would catch the movie at different points all day long I'd watch the movie in 15 minute bundles because it was playing so much so 
that kind of annoyed me, so I stopped watching it. But then introducing it to my wife and then her glee for it, watching it with the newfound kind of admiration because she hadn't grown up with it kind of reinvigorated my enthusiasm in it. So I kind of got back into it. And then us watching this 4K four day print of the phone you know it's it's nice to see this stuff being remastered and redone and stuff and uh i'd like to seek out now that that uh deleted scene of the flash gordon bit because i'm a big you know i like for my radio plays and radio shows and flash gordon stuff so that'd be cool i will just say as we close out interesting the score is by paul zaza and carl zitrer I can never pronounce his name, but these are the guys who, uh, Carl Zitcher, he, he scored Black Christmas and, uh, and, uh, Paul Zaza scored, he, he did Porky's, but he also did Prom Night, Murder by Decree, uh, My Bloody Valentine. So there's a lot of horror movie, um, Roots. Uh, yeah. Even though the music's not scary. I just thought it was interesting seeing those two names because I know those movies from, I know those names from horror movie scores. The music almost seems like it was done almost before the stuff was shot because some of the stuff like seems kind of like, you know, like the whole, the, the, the music cues around like him in school or him around the fire, the flagpole almost seem like, you know, do, 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 do. It's kind of like it could fit anywhere, you know? Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Anyway, it is uh, yeah. getting late. It's getting those early in the wee hours of the morning. On the wee hour, in the wee small hours of the morning. Uh, I love those J I L N G L D B D bells. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, um, so um, we'll hope to see you in the new in the new year. Or hear us, hear from us in the new year, uh, in bright old 2024. Uh, we'll be talking about all of our big projects and stuff that we'll be doing. Um, we hope you have a great Christmas um, season and holiday. And um, as we always like to say, go back and listen to our prior catalog. We've got some great Christmas cat. I mean, we did um, last year was the Muppet Family Christmas, which was actually one of my favorite films of all time. We did. Emmett Otter Jug Band the year before that. We did Santa Claus the movie. We did The Night They Saved Christmas. Remember that surprise with Paul Williams, Art mm-hmm. Carney? And, mm-hmm. uh, we've done, uh, like we said, Black Christmas. We've done Gremlins. Die Hard. Uh, Die Hard. <laughs> Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Have we done uh, National Lampoon's Christmas? We did do vacation. National Lampoon's uh, Christmas vacation. We did that. We did Invasion USA. <laughs> Another un- a little little known Christmas. You know, movie. I was thinking of that when Thanksgiving rolled around that we should have been promoting the fact that we have a, a few sturdy sturdy great list of Dutch uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. We have a, we have a yeah, few Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving movies. Yeah, you know, we haven't done March of the Wooden Soldiers yet, which is always played on Thanksgiving. But we've done very centric Thanksgiving movies. Um, and yeah, maybe we should put out a little posting about all the Christmas movies we have so that people know. Um, I feel like we've done more too than that, but, uh, well, we've done at least two a year for, except for the first year. Yeah. Since, yeah. So we did oh, Ernest saves Christmas. 
Ernest, Ernest P. Worrell. <laughs> yeah. um, and what else? I feel like we've done a couple more. But we've certainly gotten around to a lot of stuff. Like you said, Die Hard, Lead the Weapon. We've done horror movies. We've done comedies. We've done family-friendly movies. We've done puppet movies. We've done animated movies. We've done forgotten movies. We've done it all, baby. So um, have a look back if you're in the season. And I know a lot of people... Um, a lot of the things Blake and I hear is that a lot of our listeners like to go back and re-listen to some of the catalog. So if you're that kind of, you like to digest your entertainment in that way, we'd like to remind you to go back and listen to some of our Christmases of yesteryear, the ghosts of Christmas past, because we've done a lot of good, fun stuff that we've enjoyed. So Blake, what are you up to these days while your Christmas season goes? <sighs> I don't know. Same old. Looking, Same with me. Looking for a job is what I'm doing right now. But no. uh I'm looking for purpose. I haven't had a I haven't had a paycheck since July, so things are getting a little tight, tight in the belt this year. Oh gosh! But uh, I hope it's not that dire. That's well, we'll talk about it another time. But <laughs> we'll talk- we want to bring down the Christmas, the holiday cheer. Uh, just if you th- see Blake outside of a Walgreens, <laughs> looking, <laughs> please fill this can up, or is the Santa Claus the <laughs> ding ding? Just ding, uh, I, you know, this holiday spirit. I just want to say thank you to the uh, people that listen and continue to listen. We don't do the show a whole lot anymore, and I will can't speak for Dion, but for me, uh, at this point, I do the show because you guys ask us to, which is which is nice. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I I do it for twofold. I do it to hang out with Blake, and I do it because it's nice to to think or know that there are people out here that enjoy us putting this labor into I'm not, it. Not sure why they enjoy it, but I appreciate no. it. And, uh, and then it was almost like me relating to Blake before this podcast. I was listening to somebody else's podcast because I don't listen to podcasts. And I went on YouTube to listen to um, somebody talking about something. And I was like, gosh, when are they going to talk about the movie or the show? And then I realized <laughs> I'm actually laying critiques, critiques down to what we do all the time. Yes. So, boy, it wasn't that hypocritical of me. Um, so now I see why when we get those comments like, these fuckers aren't an hour and they're not even talking about the movie. Well, I guess I can see what you're talking about. Yes. So um, I'd like to thank everybody for putting up with us or putting up with me in particular in my rambling um, stories that, you know, go around the, the, the houses a little bit, as they say, around the cul-de-sac and into the weeds. And but, we get, uh, our car gets stuck in neutral. But because we miss Thanksgiving, I just want to give my thanks to you, the listener, for, for putting up with us, listening to the show, communicating with us on social media. Um, it's always nice. Because uh, when we do this, it's, we feel like it, you know we do it in a vacuum. But it's nice to get some feedback. And like I said, uh, at this point, I think you know we mostly do it for you guys. You know, yeah. it's nice to see Dion, but I can see Dion outside of the basement. <laughs> I know, but it's special because since my parents don't let me, um, since my parents don't let me uh, leave the basement all that very often, and on top of not that, you know, I am handcuffed to the radiator. Um, it is nice to get visitors down to the basement. And Blake's the only one that they allow down there to the basement. Yes, I'm so. the only one allowed. And all VIP I've got access. down here is an, is a Nintendo and Atari, a VHS player with five VHS tapes. And, you know, the only Nintendo games I have is freaking Jaws, Friday the 13th, you know, all these terrible role-playing video. You know, it's like, how are you going to make a Nintendo game of Friday the 13th and all you do is just walk around from one 
you know, camp room to another or Jaws where you're just looking for the shark. You know what I mean? It's like, so anyway. Anyway. That's even if the so Nintendo is working. Anyway. Yeah, but we we'll uh, digress. <laughs> Dion and I both have books out. Score to Death, Conversations with Some Hard's Greatest Composers, and Score to Death 2, More Conversations with... Uh, some of Hara's greatest composers and uh, Dion's books, Blood in the Streets. And uh, what's the name of the other one? <laughs> uh, Morris P.I., The Men from Ice House 4. And we like to say if you'd, like, if you'd love to support us or throw us some money, buy our books. They make great holiday gifts. Yeah. And if you want, um, you can even message us directly. And if you want them signed, uh, Blake has a site that does that. Or you can just... Uh, message me and, uh, you know, we can work out something uh, where I can send it to you and we can get those suckers signed before uh, the holiday season if that's what you want to do. Make it a stocking stuffer. And as usual, you can follow us at Sat Sleepovers uh, on social media or uh, for me at Score to Death on social media and Dion has a couple of different uh, social media sites. Dion, if you want to let us know what those are. I got my OnlyFans a page. I've got my uh, no, I don't have an OnlyFans page. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter X, uh, and that's really it. I don't do TikTok. Uh, and uh, you can find me, you know, search Dion Baya, or I have an author page too. You can find stuff about my books. And uh, like Blake said, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers is on Instagram, it's on Twitter, and it's on Facebook. And, you know, you can engage us, talk to us, and leave comments and stuff like that. Let us know what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're liking, what you're not liking, what you're listening to, what you're – all kinds of stuff. We love to engage the audience. And, again, like to reiterate what Blake says, I like to thank the audience as well for people who are, you know, reaching out and talking to us and, and, and you know, having this dialogue between us and – and telling us that you care to listen to the cast. It's very nice in this Christmas season or this crazy world we're living in that seems to be getting crazier every day. It's nice to know that we're able to stop down and celebrate and enjoy this collective childhood we have and where two guys like Blake and I can come and really talk about nothing for three hours can, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. generate some we sort get of... Messes, a lot of you know, beha- we get um, messages that imply that we help people out of a tough situation or, or time. T- time in their life. Yeah. Are are not infrequent for us, so uh, you know it's it's it makes us feel good to know that. Uh, I think of the people that listen to the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're the we're a Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers family, and I'm happy yeah. that Dion and I, even if it's in our most idiotic and goofy ways, can uh, and can help out. Um, it makes us feel good. So thank you so much for letting us know and for listening. Wouldn't it be cool if we could somehow, and we talked about this before, but wouldn't it be cool if somehow we can get everybody together for a sleepover? <laughs> and I mean, like, yeah. I, I we mean, metaphorically, we, we I meant like about everybody. Like there was that Airbnb that was a blockbuster. Yeah. And we talked about renting out the the blockbuster for an Airbnb and having a giant sleepover. Yeah, everyone brings cots and like, um, you know, either pull out uh, blow up mattresses or like their sleeping bags, which would get weird because I don't know if that impedes on any kind of like, uh, you know, fire codes, but yeah. I meant like even like if we were to do some sort of event somewhere, you know, that'd be cool if we were. I don't know. I don't. I don't think we'd get enough people to 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 you know in a specific no. city unless we did a tour. I think. But I, th- I still think Portland is our one. Is our one yeah. We used to up. get a lot of people. We from used that, to have but, a lot of listeners in Portland. Yeah, and Croatia. We are yeah. huge in Croatia. I don't know it's, why. 
Yeah, but when you and look at when around, you look at the stats, we're consistently in like the top podcasts of Croatia, yeah, Croatia. <laughs> which is cool. I mean, that's nice to know people are into that kind of. They speak English and they listen to us. Um, and even if we did some sort of touring circuit, I don't even think us playing like small theaters would work. We'd have to play like coffee houses. Yeah, you know, we'd would. be playing like at a Starbucks if they put a stage outside, up over there outside the Starbucks. Yeah, we're On there, the like you know. Next to the guy with the for the Salvation Army. So, all right. Hope everybody has a nice Christmas. Um, we may uh, be seeing you guys or hearing from you guys really soon, or you may be hearing from us very soon. And uh, we hope you have a great holiday season. And uh, we'll see you very, very sooner than later. Later. Mm-hmm.